0: Hey, everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. On this episode, we're going to be discussing The Departed. Uh, We do recommend watching the movie beforehand. It makes the discussion probably much
1: more fun. Uh, So, Mike, what is The Departed about? John, every day I come by your house and I pick you up. And we go out, we have a few drinks, a few laughs, it's great. But you know what the best part of my day is? For about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the cab and when I get to your door, because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. You just left. I don't know much, but I know that. My boy's wicked smart. How do you like them apples, John? I'm putting this whole town in my rear view. We're shipping out to Boston. Crime. Go Sox. It,
0: <laughs> um... Is this offensive? Are we good? Is this? Is this? Do, are, are we? Are we going to go with this? Tom Brady. The oh, I did not know if you were done or not. Okay. Wow. Yeah. No. You don't. That's a Hall of Fame. That's, okay. I don't even have a comment. Uh, welcome to this film could be your life. Oh my God. <laughs> Everybody, welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life. This is a film podcast where two movie geeks take the movies that they love way too seriously. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by my friend Mike Overstreet. Tom Brady. Okay. Okay. Uh, who's not... I mean, I don't know if you guys could tell. Mike is not actually from Boston. Um, it was it was so convincing, though. You I, know, did, I, just I didn't did use to listen the new to listeners. the Dropkick
1: Murphys, though, so it's, like, honorary. That's very
0: easy to believe. I actually don't believe that you don't still listen to them. Yeah, that's fair. All right? yeah, there we go. Uh, as should be obvious, we are talking about The Departed on this episode. This is the 2006 Martin Scorsese film, uh, a remake, actually, of a 2002 Hong Kong movie, *Infernal Affairs. Uh, here's the summary from Wikipedia. The film takes place in Boston. I just want to note, I love that that's the first sentence just on its yeah. own on the summary. It has to be. Uh, the film takes... It has to be. It's so It's so key to this. The film takes place in Boston. Irish mob boss Frank Costello plants Colin Sullivan as a mole within the Massachusetts State Police. Simultaneously, the police assign undercover state trooper Billy Costigan to infiltrate Costello's crew. When both sides realize the situation, Sullivan and Costigan each attempt to discover the other's identity before they are found out. Features an ensemble cast of Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen, Vera Farmiga, Alec Baldwin, and of course, Jack Nicholson. Uh, This was very famously Scorsese's first movie to, uh, or the first time he personally won an Academy Award for Best Director. Um, I have a quote from Scorsese. Actually, this is from when he won the uh, top award from the Directors Guild of America for this movie. He called it, in that speech, the first movie I have ever done with a plot. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> which I just, which I just really appreciated. And I thought you might too. The the uh, last The Last Temptation of Christ doesn't have a plot. I, you know, maybe we got to do the Last Temptation of Christ. I love it. Oh movie. boy, that's great. So we start the podcast by talking about our history with the film, Mike. I, I believe this is our first Scorsese movie, right?
1: Yeah. Hard
0: so to believe, we have a yeah. lot. To, it is very hard to believe. We have a lot to talk about then because I'm obviously interested in, in uh, your history with The Departed. But if you're like me, that kind of dovetails with your history with Scorsese because yeah. we were both for, like 14 to 15, I think, when this movie came out. Um, pretty big splash on culture. So I guess starting there, was this, you know, obviously what was your history with this movie, but how much does that coincide with your introduction to Marty Scorsese?
1: Yeah, no, this movie is super interesting for me um, for a number of reasons I, I, it was essentially the introductory film to me becoming a full blown film geek you know it was the year before 2007 with There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and that year was the year that I like went head first into being a cinephile because that I mean that run is historic but I remember yeah. seeing this movie the year before that and I just like loved it and I actually think I had just seen Goodfellas. So I was actually just about to kick off a Scorsese kind of like obsession that would actually take me until the modern day, until this present moment, I'm still obsessed with the man. Um yeah. so I saw Goodfellas, I was like, Oh, this would be sweet. Oh, he has another one coming out, I'm gonna go see it. And then uh it is it just blew my mind. And and that's the second layer of why I'm obsessed with it, is that I absolutely love it. Um at the time when I was like whatever 14 I was like this is a perfect movie um but nowadays it's more like I love it and yet <laughs> like it has some of the it has some pretty massive flaws which we'll get to it's a bonkers movie um it's yeah 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 I and then the last part is I I do think this is the first movie that I remember seeing where I had like a I didn't know you could do that in a movie moment which is obviously mm. uh spoiler alert when DiCaprio gets his brains blown out all over a wall, um, what? Yeah, what are you talking about? You haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's gonna be rough. I have
0: No, uh, I didn't watch it yet. I was just going from the Wikipedia summary.
1: Yeah, but so like it was. It's one of those moments where I, I I remember the visceral reaction I had to that moment. Um, and it's one of those movies that I really associate with just me falling in love with movies because I had such a strong, you know, just mind blown like you can't just kill him like this way this suddenly this yeah. earth, uh, what um and yeah so it, it definitely kicked off the uh scorsese assance for me where i just you know i remember watching Reggie bull taxi driver i went through every movie he ever made in pretty much like two months after this movie came out and i saw this i think <laughs> yeah. i saw this four or five times in theaters so this movie is it's one of my favorites it is by far not on my list of best movies ever made. Um, sure. But, man, it's 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 one of my favorite movies ever made. I love it so much in its <laughs> brilliance and its flaws. Yeah.
0: No, I, I think those are all – we're similar in a lot of ways. We're different in a few key ways. Um, I have never had the same – excuse me. I have never had the same affection for this Particular movie, even though I did really like it. And it was my introduction to Scorsese. What's interesting is I can't recall seeing it in theaters. I don't think mm. I did. I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw it you missed at, out. at home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and what I, what I, the thing I most remember about when this movie came out is that I was watching the Oscars. And it was the first year that I was like kind of interested in that. And obviously, this was a, a pretty big moment because Scorsese had been frankly, shafted many times, um, most famously in 1991 for Goodfellas uh, for Best Director, right? And yeah. so, you know, he's the favorite, and, and he's lining up. What I remember uh, they had um, presenting the Best Director award was George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Coppola, who are obviously all close friends of, of Martin Scorsese, uh, which I do remember thinking, even at the time, that was a bit of a gamble, because if he had lost, that would just look even worse. Uh, I don't know if, how the Oscars work, if they knew he was going to win and that's how they planned that. But all the same, it was, it was weird because that meant I sort of was interacting with Scorsese's legacy before I'd ever watched any of his movies. I yeah. hadn't seen anything from him. Yeah. Um, but I was watching the Oscars and I was like, everyone's talking about how big a deal it is that he's finally gotten this and that's so overdue and whatever. And so I dovetail from that. Obviously, I watched The Departed. Which is, frankly, a weird first movie of Scorsese to watch because it isn't that much like his other movies. It is much more... um, I would say it's much less thematically resonant in some ways, right? I, I think there's a clear sense where this movie this movie has really interesting themes and it has a lot of depth that we'll get into, but it's not a character study the way most of his movies are. Uh, Most of his movies like zero in on a few people and and put them through hell is what he usually does. And you really see all these fascinating parts of their characters come out. This movie does not do that and is much more contained actually, I would say than a lot of his most famous movies. Uh, Still a fun place to start. And and I, I certainly liked the movie initially, I was telling Mike right before we started recording. I um, I think I definitely, on the rewatch recently, I remembered how much fun this is. I yeah. I hadn't rewatched it in a long time because, uh, I don't know, I, I think we'll get into this a little bit more later. It's a very long movie. Mostly it keeps up a pace, but I don't necessarily sit down and like, let me just put on The Departed. Uh, so I, I've certainly had a more conflicted relationship with it, but I do really like it. And certainly I have a lot of, thoughts on it which uh i don't know if you're good with that mike we can we can just go straight into yeah, talking about the movie a little bit let's do more. it man uh real quick actually i'm sorry i i forgot something i had pulled up so actually though i did want to talk real quick uh this did win scorsese his best director and it did win best picture uh the other best picture nominees that year <laughs> because this was not a strong year, no. and I, I, I do also love this movie. I will say, if this had been a stronger year, I don't know if he would have had a shot. But, nope. Um, the other, Do you know the other Best Picture nominees from this year? Babel's one. Babel is one. Letters from Iwo Jima. Ooh, Clint. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which I can't believe got a Best Picture nod, actually. Uh, it kind of was the beginning of the indie
1: me. movie in pop culture. Yeah, right? like, yeah. The, and when I, I, I guess say my indie timing's movie, off in my head. Yeah. I don't really mean indie movies. I mean, like the trope that big corporations sold as this is the indie vibe kind of movies like Juno and this, which don't get me wrong. I actually like Little Miss Sunshine. I like Juno, but it's such a, it's such a marketing ploy. Anyway, going on. Garden State was kind of in there too. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Um, and then rounded out with the queen, which oh. I actually really like. But hey. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the departed is clearly
1: the Can most. Can you believe the most that the departed movie. and slumdog millionaire won on both sides of no country and there will be blood battling it out for best picture? That's so.
0: Uh, this just makes me mad. Yeah. Because in hindsight, it's like, it's like <laughs> I wish I could have got to. Paul Thomas Aronson and said, hey, maybe kick it back one year. Yeah, just wait just, a year. Just take a little longer in the editing. You'll be He'll, battling it out mean, with
1: Danny Boyle. Which don't be wrong, Slum Dog's a perfectly fine movie, but come on, guys. Like, it's okay. It's fine. De, uh, Dev Patel is the best part of that movie. Like it. Fine. Obviously. The word fine is all I'm gonna say for this movie. <laughs> Anyways, let's get when back. Are, We're when talking are we doing about Slumdog? uh never. That's okay. our last episode, okay.
0: <laughs> I don't I'm talking like I hate it. I don't even hate it. I'm just kinda no. like I just <laughs> I'm very up and down on Danny Boyle. I will say that. I, yeah. I think that guy's weird because he's welcome to the Danny Boyle podcast. He's got such, he's got moments that I love so much, and he's got moments that I'm like, what are you do it? What what is this? What are we doing here? You know what I, I like love it, Steve
1: Jobs. I would do that. You know what I like about this podcast so far? It's as yeah. disjointed structurally as the part it is.
0: <laughs> this is. This, this is an artistic statement. We are rendering the film <laughs> onto function, your ears, baby. dear listener. Oh, boy. Well, we do actually talk about the movie in this podcast. So we're going to talk about uh, what makes this movie work, what maybe holds this movie back, some stray thoughts, and then later on we're going to have some essays we both prepared. To start with, though, we do talk about why this movie works, and there's a lot of reasons. Uh, it, to, to start with, I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting because – a lot of movie people do that little move that you just did, Mike, of I don't know if this is technically a great movie, and I think there's a lot of things that are obviously, you know, maybe not the strongest, but this is an incredibly watchable movie. yeah, it's just so, I don't know, it's just a fun movie to watch. and it's just is despite me saying it's a little long, which we'll get to later. it's I don't know. It, what I wrote is it kind of reminds me of Temple of Doom when we talked about that, where it's like, Every scene has something to like, pretty yeah. much, right? Something flashy, or funny, or tense, or you know, gripping, or whatever. It, it mostly lands, and mostly every scene you could tune in at any scene and be like, ah, oh, I'll watch this for a little bit, and that's a strength, and that's hard to do over a two and a half hour movie. Uh, that's, I don't know, I, I think that's a huge part of why why we're even talking about it still, so, like, 15 years later, right?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think apart from Goodfellas, this is, for me, his most rewatchable movie, and and I again, I'm not saying best, I'm saying when it comes to, like, a movie I throw on in the background or uh, just want to kill some time. Like, I'm not doing that with Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is an objectively better movie, <laughs> but, like, it's not my fun thrill for a Saturday, right? It's, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which gets back to even what you're saying, where this is not really a character study. This is just a a thriller. And it's it's yeah. what it really is is watching one of the best directors who's ever lived sit down to make a trash crime movie. Um, which is so fun. There's something so fun about yeah. that. Like most directors are too up their own egos and butts to even stoop low enough to to make a movie like the departed with the, the craft that Scorsese applies to it. Which I just appreciate greatly, but it does make it so incredibly rewatchable. Like you said, apart from a few moments, I think this movie's pacing is great. It moves, even like the dialogue is almost always incredibly active. The it's script almost, is really good too. Yeah, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. An unbelievable wit throughout the the script, which I think keeps it kind of, you know, bouncing line to line. But, like, even when people are talking, they're almost never, I realize this, like, sitting at a table. It's almost never static. Yeah. It is always an active conversation. People are walking. People are doing something. The camera's moving. It's just like a frantic movie up and down uh, in terms of its actual writing and and construction, which just makes it kind of a thrill ride. You know, uh, the other thing I had for why it's so fun is that, I mean, Scorsese takes more risk in this movie than a lot of his movies. And that's, I'm trying to think how to word this. I don't mean that thematically. I think he has more daring movies yeah. thematically, but I think he just like, there are some shots and there are some scenes in this movie where you can tell he's just like, eh, why not? I'm going to try it. And some of them yeah. totally miss. Some of them are just whiffs, but man, when he hits, they are amazing. And it's stuff that yeah. you just very rarely see, um, in some of his other films. So yeah.
0: Well, it's, and it's weird to, to, To build off that a little bit, because, like, it's not – I think a lot of people think of this movie as, like, a very almost classical movie. Like, it's – it's there's there's elements where it's not as experimental as, for example, Goodfellas, right? Yeah. Because Goodfellas is doing all this weird stuff with its narrative and anti-narrative in the last 30 minutes and whatever. But – I would say where, th- where this movie lacks, like, overarching um, experimentation, it has a lot of micro-experimentation. There's a lot of little things that I'm like, you know, I think, I think a slightly less good director would have played this straight, where he was just like, what if we, like, one thing I noticed, there's all these little shots where the speed cranks up yeah. for some reason. Uh, and, and it just suddenly becomes, like, this weird, like, fast motion thing for just a hint of a second, just enough for your eye to be like, wait, 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 and then you're back. And he has like these little off-angle shots, and he has these little like, like you know, suddenly. I I, I love the music in this movie. I love when it just like stops suddenly, yes. constantly. Yes, um, it's so weird, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, that I I just think like again because the the plot itself is straightforward. I just think a lesser director wouldn't have had fun with that. Wouldn't have like oh, well, let's just do this thing. Let's just let's make this scene cut off randomly, and let's go straight to this other character, and let's.
1: There's a lot of little experimentation in this movie, and it just makes it fun. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the best example of that, at least for me, is the movie's opening, right? Other than yeah, the fact yeah. that Jack Nicholson, who we will get to later, uh, says about 12 racial slurs in like two seconds for no apparent reason. Great, great moment. Um, yeah, other than that. that, you know, it starts off with the title card that just says Boston some years ago, and then the first line is, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. No one gives it to you. You have to take it. And then it has just that um, classic, you know, like kind of 70s classic rock song come in. And Mm. there's this whole setup, right, where you have the line about you can be a cop or a criminal, and the question I ask you is when you're facing a loaded gun, what's the difference? It introduces all these characters. They go through training. He has the great conversation, which I'm sure we'll talk about, when we talk about some of the great scenes in the movie where he gets, uh, uh, when I say he, I mean, uh, DiCaprio's character gets set up as an undercover cop. And then like 20 minutes into the film, dropkick Murphys kicks on out of nowhere. And the title card plays. (laughs) And you're just like, what a daring thing to do. You like, I forgot there hadn't been a title card yet. Like I completely just assumed we weren't doing that today. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, and there is something very daring about that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's my favorite example of such a small change that everyone notices and is so cool. And if if and it also like also like um, kind of cuts off his own space from everyone else because no one else can do that ever now, right? Yeah. You will yeah. just watch and be like, "Wow, you're just completely ripping off Scorsese." But that's such a cool, weird little idea of like, let's just get you get through a lot of plot. It's literally twenty minutes in, and suddenly out of nowhere. The departed black on, you know, white text on black screen. And you're like, was
1: that the, was that the intro? What are we doing here? What? I thought we were in the movie. Yeah. And then like you said, kicking or shipping off to Boston, just hard cuts off. And it's this old Boston woman <laughs> opening a screen door. And she's like, Billy. Hello? And you're like, yeah, yeah. what is
0: happening? What is this movie? What am I watching? <laughs> That's a great way. And I, I like that phrase too. Cause you ask yourself that a few times in this movie. What am I watching? What is I, I thought this movie was one thing, it's showing me something else. Yeah. that's fun and that's good stuff. Um, yeah, I love all of that. What, what else you got? I don't want to steal the steal. I've noticed by the way in a lot of previous episodes, I just go through my list and then leave you with nothing. Yeah, so I'm trying to pass a, it to you a little
1: bit. You're a glutton. <laughs>
0: um. I am the. I think we decided I was the host, right? We said that when we started. I mean, so you know, we is such this a strong on word.
1: You. Um, oh. <laughs> go, go, go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I guess I, I'm just going to stick with the opening run because I, I think, you know, there's a couple scenes that are so indicative of this movie. Like, when I think of The Parted, they come to mind, right? Especially in that, and when the editing that he's doing, both in sound and visual hit, Um, that I'm just like, oh, that's The Parted. That's why I love that movie. And a couple... Yeah two that really stuck out to me. And I know you have a lot to say about one. Uh, the first one mm-hmm. is the opening interview with DiCaprio, dingham. And, um, Oh my gosh, I just forgot. Queen. Queen. thank you yeah. where they are interviewing him. And it's just such a great back and forth, like dialogue. Right. And there's yeah. so many great performances going on, which I'm sure we'll dive into also, but it, it's such an interesting use of editing where, Yeah, he is cutting in between Damon's character and DiCaprio's character. And it's amazing how much exposition he gets into that little run. And yet that's also at the same time, one of the most rewatchable scenes in the movie. And I don't know how you do that, right? I don't know how you literally pack a 20 minute segment full of just background story in the sense of these characters. And you have like the DiCaprio's mother mother's story you have all this other stuff that's just setting up plot and character development and yet i could sit there and watch that on youtube like 15 times in a row it's so rewatchable right yeah and it's all editing i mean so well and and he uses such a Mm. he does he, he makes
0: such a great use out of having those two side stories and this comes up throughout the whole movie but anytime one story is getting a little bit dull or anytime it just needs something uh some a little kick It'll just start intercutting with the other character, yeah. which is great because a it makes it more watchable and more fun, but also it it keeps your brain on the compare comparing the two because that's yeah. the whole movie, right? It is each of their journey in kind of the same situation, but also fundamentally a very different situation. Yeah, and how they how they handle that, and so it it's just yeah, you're right, it's just smart, and it just makes things that would otherwise be really boring like we can't emphasize enough this movie in lesser hands would have been a nightmare yeah and would have been like just bloated and weird and probably just boring and he just does those things that you're just like wow this is fun i'm just having a great time watching this otherwise very boring scene i totally agree
1: well and and the other scene that i was thinking of that i think is probably the most rewatchable scene in the movie and i know like i said i know you have a lot to say about it but it's the one where damon calls dicaprio on yeah. Queen Anne's phone, right? And it's such when you think about the actual content of that scene, it's boring. One dude calls another yeah. dude. The other dude hangs up. He don't say anything. Yeah. And then he calls him back. And uh yeah. and yet the way that he like he cuts like a close up on the phone as it's ringing, it cuts like their faces as they're looking down at the phone, it cuts to DiCaprio pacing, and that teen- scene feels so Tense, and then on top of that, he has all the sound editing of silence, and then the ringing of the phone, and it's this really jarring, sudden cuts. It's almost like an action sequence, right? It's one of yeah. those. It's one yeah. of the most thrilling scenes in the movie, and you're sitting there, and you're just like, "But there's nothing actually thrilling happening." And then yeah. I'll just throw this in because it's my favorite line in the movie. But then the the great line: "You call this number on a dead guy's phone? Who are you?" Which is like the best line in the whole movie. But yeah, again, I just keep going back to the brilliance of the editing. And again, it's a master making a movie that (laughs) you just don't expect him to make. But yeah, I know you have a lot to say about that scene. But that was the other one where that editing and that cutting and the way that he makes it so fun and thrilling adds life to an otherwise probably pretty mundane scene in the film
0: absolutely and and, well and to be honest i'm not going to say too much because my essay is is basically about that scene but I, i will just say enough to say i agree and and in general i think what this movie does that's so that people like us just love right is that those tense moments are really tense yes and those and he really he just knows how to make a movie and so it just lands really well and i i agree that's actually that i would say that is actually my favorite scene of the movie uh but we're going to get to that a little bit later, so
1: we'll, well, actually, we'll put a pin in that. But, that that's a good yeah. segue, if I can throw out another What Worked. Absolutely. And this is kind of two that I'll just combine into one, which is, uh, one's a question, and is that is this the best cat and mouse movie you've ever seen?
2: Mm. Because mm. I kind of feel I mean, like
1: it is. Like, I feel like his ability to create tension especially in like how you feel the fraying nerves of Billy Costigan throughout the entire film. Like, and you feel his fraying nerves both because of DiCaprio's performance, but also because he has such a provocative ability to create the tension of being hunted, like, and of the sheer terror of the, the, the like tightening noose that Billy Costigan's entire life has kind of become right. Right. and whether that's use of like he has a really effective use of sudden violence in this movie you know the bar scene with cranberry juice that's amazing but I always think of the scene when him and Frenchie go to kill the guy while he's describing being undercover to his therapist and the guy like throws the toy at him and he's just like we're not gonna hurt you and then he shoots him in the head and that's just like such a One,
0: and remember, it's intercut. He's looking through DiCaprio's character is looking through photos. I think of yes, the, I, I believe from the guy of his of his family or something. like yeah. is just not being able to deal with what he's being was being asked of him, and that comes up so much. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. It's great. So, it, it,
1: but what it really what's really in, it is incredible. But I think what I love about that is that it so effectively makes you as the viewer feel like how dicaprio or how billy costigan feels which is like you are being hunted they're closing in you are in danger at all times so that's kind of the question i was i guess i'll go back to which is i think this is one of the best cat and mouse movies i've ever seen i think that comes down to the tension of it but just curious yeah. your thoughts on that front i I, t- I agree
0: i think what i tend to think about. um the plotting is so good, and obviously we, you know, that also goes back to the original movie that it's based off of. But I just, I actually, what I really love is when um, Queenan dies. Even though I love Margot, <sighs> see, it always makes me sad. <sighs> but I love when Queenan dies, and then, um, and then Dingham gets gets kicked out of the department, because then the stakes just jump to like eleven, right? Yeah. Because now you're like, oh my god, he's he doesn't even have that fallback anymore. It just ratchets the tension so 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 well. I did want to say, in terms of cat and mouse, uh, I need to shout out my weebs out there. Death Note mm. uh, is actually – is not a movie, but is a show. It is the best cat and mouse I've, plot I've ever seen ever. If you haven't watched it, go watch Death Note. The first half is amazing. The second half sucks, but the first half is so good it makes up for that. Uh, I'll get you to watch that one day. This is Uh-oh. the Death Note podcast. This is the weeb podcast, man. Let's oh, just get let's just own it. I'm out. <laughs> let's just own it. I'm out. At any rate, you're right, though. I mean, I, I it's – Watching that that interaction escalate, and it is—it's such a simple plot idea, but they just execute it so well. And you're there, and you're, and yeah, it just—it it, it maintains tension so well. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I'm not really gonna do a transition for this. I just want to talk a little bit about the actors because we've talked around oh. it a little bit. Yes. Um, I want to quote. There's this there's this famous quote uh, that I think is unascribed. I think it's just something people have said forever about the Who. Uh, the band, which is that uh, every band member was trying to be the lead instrument at all times. And that's why they worked.
2: <laughs> that's this that movie. kind
0: of applies <laughs> to this movie. I think I, I, what I wrote was with the exception of Leo, I think every person in this movie is just trying to eat everything around them. It's yes. just, it's everyone is over the top. Everyone is raucous. Everyone is taking their accent To ridiculous places, and some people it lands, some people it doesn't. But every it's it's just all these great actors just going for it, and you know we could talk, we could go through everyone. I mean, the obvious people to talk about. We have to shout out DiCaprio and Damon, yeah, who who are the center of the movie and hold it. This actually might be my oh, I I didn't write this down, so I have to think about it. Is this the best Damon performance? Is this my favorite Damon performance? I should say. I don't know what the that's tough because what well, we got? Yeah, we got Bourne. Like, we got uh, Good Will Hunting. You got the Martian. We got. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I like the Martian. I wouldn't put it. Yeah, anywhere. I'm just throwing no. out movies. John G. Sure, sure. Come on, <laughs> give me a break. I think a lot of people would say Bored or something. I just think the way he inhabits the role, the way he is so perfectly that guy from Boston, and is always charming but always off putting.
1: Oh yeah, like you—he, yeah.
0: you never think he's the good guy because he's not. Ne- he's not. He's always the bad guy the whole movie, but he is kind of charming and he is kind of fun. And I just love when he's on screen. I just love Damon so much in this movie. DiCaprio is kind of a bummer. That's the
1: character, but I guess he's good too. I don't know. It's hard for me well, to see past that. So real quick on Damon, like it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I first saw this movie, I like probably had like a cold take that he wasn't good in it. And then, you know, (laughs) I I got used to movies more and I was like, oh, no, he's just so unlikable. Like as a 15 year old, I was like, he's unlikable. So he's not good in this movie. And then, you know, you come back to it with a more mature mindset and you're like, he's amazing. And he's you know, he's trying to be this unlikable and slimy and gross. And he's doing such a good job at it because you're right. He's off putting. That's the best word for it. Like the scene where he's talking to Alec Baldwin and Alec Baldwin's like get a wife because then people know your dick works so he's like it's working overtime, yeah and you're just like you yeah. are the most uncomfortable freaking dude yeah. i have you're ever slimy seen on corporate a screen. guy
0: i always i remember when uh when he's talking to his friend who we later find out is the other mole but yeah what does he, say? he says do you got a suit at home or do you like coming to the office like you're
1: about to invade poland
0: <laughs> and you're like i hate this guy but i but i'm having fun with the character it's i want to be there yeah yeah yeah
1: no yeah he, he's great and like I said he has to you know we'll, I want to talk about the uh, final scenes of this movie as it's own thing later but you know sure. he has to he has to nail this performance for you to be satisfied with the conclusion uh, there's just something that happens at the end of the film that feels wonderful and you won't feel that way if uh, you don't utterly hate this person I don't um, know why
0: you're talking around it we've already well, had I don't spoilers spoil you, when you get shot that. That Matt gets Damon shot. gets
1: shot. What are you? What are you doing? Um, <laughs> they already know. No one, yeah. I,
0: I resent anyone who's listened this far without watching the movie. We we told you to watch it. This is on your. This is your fault.
1: Yeah, and I like how audience. I already spoiled DiCaprio dying and yeah, like, whatever. Anyway, so who cares? But yeah, so like when he gets killed, you know the the payoff of this movie is 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 old Marky Mark and his little slip ons capping him in the face, what? and it's not a satisfying ending if he does not have you feeling like. Good lord, this guy better get what's coming to him cuz he sucks that yeah. much. And boy do I if feel the that way movie had ended by the end 5 minutes
0: in. before, no one would like this movie. Yeah. You would exactly. Be, I mean, it'd be yeah. okay, but you wouldn't you wouldn't think of it as a fun rewatchable movie. But,
1: yeah. mm, that feels so good. Yes, it does. And on the other hand, Particularly coming from that character too. On the other hand, you know, to do a smooth transition, you know, DiCaprio's death is so upsetting because yeah. he Im- poses such a nuanced performance onto this character. Like, I do think the writing is good, but I think so much of his performance in this movie is so physical, and so much of my empathy from him comes from the obvious, I already said, nerves fraying, but from, like, this unraveling that you watch him portray in every part of his body, right? There are just scenes where, by the look in his eyes, you're like, this dude is falling apart, and I feel for him. Um, And he's just amazing. You know the, I, I actually think this might be DiCaprio's best performance. Sorry, go on.
0: Well, it, it's funny you say that because I was about to say the the context I brought to this movie on the recent rewatch that I have never had before was DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time um, in Hollywood, which is, yeah. I think, his best performance. But yeah, that's there. It, it's yeah. interesting in hindsight because I think you see, like, for me, I'm not sure if I ever recognize the way that he he is a very physical actor. That, I mean, I'm, that, I could just be dumb, so like you know, whatever. But but looking back at that, at, at the Departed, it's so obvious. Yeah, the, all these little things he does with his body language, right? And in yeah. the Departed, it's it's relatively subtle, but the little shaking, like his leg is shaking a lot, and he's and you know, j- j- just all these little ticks and mannerisms and and posture and all these ways that he's conveying. Being uncomfortable or being stressed or being anxious or trying to not appear like those things, um, and like I said, it was cool watching it now because I almost saw it as a preview. Because in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he really goes for it. Yeah, he's got all of these weird. Like he becomes this completely different persona to his normal, or I don't even know if it's normal, but his standard charming on-screen on-screen character, and. You see that I think you see that DNA in both of them. Is I guess yeah. what I'm trying to say that he he uses his body in those really interesting ways. Yeah, it's. A, I, I think the one thing too you could say is that rewatching the movie, DiCaprio stands out more and more and more. When you first watch the movie, you're you'd be forgiven for forgetting he's in it when you think about
1: it. Yeah, sure. Because um, he's actually being understated and not just trying to yeah. eat the movie alive. Yeah.
0: Everyone else yeah, yeah. is is blowing him off the screen, but you rewatch it and you're like, oh, this guy is holding the whole movie together. He's yeah. why, he's why you want to know what happens next. Well, um, and and again, funny.
1: well, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, just like, again, going back to, to that point, like the more I rewatch this movie, the more I look forward to that first therapy session, which we'll get into whether the therapy character <laughs> I was gonna say, belongs all, this movie in my, at all, it um, didn't
0: work section, but fair enough. Yeah. The but no, 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 no. Yeah. But
1: his, his performance, like when he's talking, he said, he's saying, absolutely. Uh, what's the line? Actually, we let's just play it. You sit there with a mass murderer, a mass murderer. Your heart rate is jacked. Your hand, steady. That's one thing I figured out about myself in prison. My hand does not shake, ever. And then he follows it up with obviously the hilarious line of why don't you just give me a bottle of scotch and a handgun to blow my effing brains out. And he goes, and what if that was a real threat? Think about that, hot shot. Yeah. <laughs> he just leaves. But, but that entire scene is what you're talking about where you're watching him fidget. You're watching him like even with a therapist, he's battling between how open does he want to be? And then also he's manipulating her. But at the same time, there's a part of him that you can tell is just like screaming to just let out this anxiety that is eating him alive and i think about that scene over and over again when i rewatch this movie because you're right it does foretell kind of where his career goes where he does become a very embodied actor um but at the same time this might be a couple scenes in this movie might be the best that i ever see him at capturing a character who's like really just spiraling when it comes to violence, anger, insecurity, vulnerability, fear in both the words he's saying, but even more so in the way he behaves and the way that he, he, like you said, has subtle mannerisms. Uh, the other thing that came to mind real quick was when, you know, Frank accuses him of being a rat and you're watching his eyes in that scene. And I actually believe that DiCaprio is afraid up for his life as he acted out that performance because you're like, this <laughs> yeah. dude literally thinks he's about to get shot in the face. <laughs> like and DiCaprio captures all of that, saying almost nothing in that scene. Most of that scene mm-hmm. is a Nicholson monologue, right? And yet the best actor is clearly DiCaprio in that little showdown. Yeah. So
0: anyway, absolutely
1: I don't know if you had any thoughts uh, on any of that, but here's the here's the
0: gauntlet. Do you who do you take? DiCaprio or what performance do you take? DiCaprio here or Blood Diamond? What do you got, Mike? What do you got, Mike? Oh boy. Okay, moving moving on to the rest of the actors though that we want to talk about and what works. Uh, I mean, we already mentioned him, but I almost feel like we don't. I don't even know if we're gonna have much to say because everyone knows. But Mark Wahlberg in this movie, he's a god. He's a god. It's just he's in maybe ten minutes, twelve yeah. minutes. Like he's he's it's he has like three scenes, uh, and is just the most fun character. Maybe in any Scorsese movie ever.
2: He's so Every
0: single word that comes out of his mouth is just fantastic. And we can't because you and I try to keep this show relatively PG, we can't repeat any of them. No. I don't even know if I can play any of them. <laughs> no. Um because they're so profanity ridden, but it's just amazing. He's just he's just He's just blowing everyone else off the screen. He looks like he's having fun. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, do you is. have Do you have anything else on Marky Mark our Boy? Um, second episode. Second episode in a row, by the way. Buggy Nights last week. Uh, <laughs> departed this week. Very different Mark Wahlberg performance, I would say. Um, a little. But clearly yeah. his two his two prime moments. He never yeah. topped Buggy Nights and The Departed. Like these yeah. two movies, it's incredible. Well, he's, maybe ten too. Arguably the best part about the movie.
1: What was it? Maybe Ted too, but um, maybe Ted Two. <laughs> no.
0: or transformers rise of the fallen. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go.
1: There we no, go. Every, every, when we were talking about the scripts wit and what the script brings to this movie, I think of him and Alec Baldwin in which I'm just like, yeah, the way these characters are written with their one liners and how they deliver them is, is flawless. It's just every single line he says <laughs> makes me laugh out loud. Um, when, um, and go ahead. sorry, like when he's talking with Alec Baldwin about doing his mom, it's like, <laughs> and what? How's your mom doing? She's tired from doing my father. <laughs> You're like, what? Who wrote this? And it's, oh, I'm it's sorry. so incredible. Go ahead.
0: No, you go. It's, it's just. I so was funny. gonna say because you open up Alec Baldwin, who I just want to note also not in this movie very much also incredible actually sometimes my favorite part of the movie i'm biased because i've loved i've been on the baldwin train ever since 30 rock and obviously the best movie ever made hunt for october no but um he's incredible in this movie he is so funny my favorite scene is actually when they're doing the stakeout and he and the guy the tech guy didn't put up cameras in the back right yeah and it's clear that they've blown the whole operation and he says to the guy can you step over here a minute and the guy gets up and they <laughs> walk over there. And then he just starts beating the crap out of him. Like, like, and he it's not like a fake movie fight. It looks like Alec Baldwin is really trying to beat the hell out of this guy. And it is so funny in the moment. And they're all holding him back, and he's he's cursing a storm. And it's just amazing. Every single yeah, that character, yeah. I could just frame every one of his lines.
1: Yeah, I've never lived in Boston, but Mark Wahlberg and Alec Baldwin in this movie are who I assume Boston to be, like the entire city. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's also in The Stakeout with Mark Wahlberg. One of the few lines we can actually repeat is when he's yelling at the same camera guy and the guy's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy.
0: I'm just That like, was going to be in my stray thoughts. I've yeah. always wanted a chance to use that line. It's I've so never good. gotten to do it, but I've always wanted to say, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy
1: what a what an amazing scene and i won't finish the line but people have seen the movie know it but uh just real quick when he says in this department if you work hard you'll rise fast mark Wahlberg has a follow-up line that is not appropriate (laughs) for this podcast that literally makes me like spit out my drink every time i see this movie (laughs) it's just amazing and it's so gross and you're like what are you doing (laughs)
0: <laughs> even when, and even when Baldwin's doing that little speech at the very beginning, every yes. speech Baldwin gives is amazing, but he's doing the speech at the beginning and he's going through all of, all of Costello's associates. He says, she, he lives. this guy lives with his mother. She's straight up going my way. He just yep. keeps going. Like he's every single line he punctuates with something like that.
1: And it's always funny. And it it's always the amazing. Last one on Baldwin. What's the, uh, when Mark Wahlberg leaves, he's like. He's really a nice guy. Don't judge him (laughs) by this encounter alone. And he says it so (laughs) straight-faced.
0: Well, Sorry, we we devolved into quotes. That's okay. Uh, The world needs plenty of bartenders. (laughs) Two weeks with pay. Good. Amazing.
1: Yeah, no, those two are great. I mean, and this movie really does kind of like with its total vibe. It's a very hit and miss movie with the performances, uh, but those side performances that do hit are so strong that generally I just forget about the ones that don't. Like just a shout out a few others: Ray Winstone is as Mr. French. Oh I my love God, him. he's great! I just yeah. love him. I actually think very terrifying but funny kind yeah, of both. Yeah, yeah. Like, again, the cranberry juice scene is when he does the. There's guys you can hit and guys that you can't. He's not quite a guy that you can't. But, you know, that entire, like, <laughs> back and forth. I'm like, this dude's, like, witty. But also, I'm afraid he could kill me in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. Well, because, you know, like, think, that
0: you mentioned earlier, that scene where they shoot that guy. And Riot after he says, we're not going to hurt you, and shoots him. Yeah. That's terrifying. That's, yeah,
1: that's, that's horrifying. crazy. I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, there's, like, a bunch of bit actors in this movie that I think are pretty well cast. Um, I actually this is a, a unpopular take with a lot of movie people. I think Vera Farmiga, or Farmiga does a good job in this movie. I just think her yeah. part isn't good. Um, totally agree. Which we'll I hold think off. She's great, on. Yeah, but but I think she yeah. she makes a part that should be a total dumpster fire kind of work. So
0: similarly, I know I know people have mixed. Maybe not the most positive things to say uh, about Martin Sheen, but I think he's great. I think oh, he, I love he lands the he lands the fatherly presence so well, which again is important for when he dies, because yeah, then which, you're like you're like we're off the rails now. You the know? moment
1: that he that uh, DiCaprio goes to his house and he's like, "That's my kid. He's in Notre Dame." You're like, "You're dead, dude." it's over yeah you're, like, you're gonna throw thrown off making. a building it's gonna suck and he's
0: like come get some food come on and you're like yeah. oh man this guy's not gonna last Yeah, come, uh, no, come no, get some pavement positive. bub no one in a scorsese movie is that nice makes it very far yeah no. just in general uh i don't know are we missing we're, there's one obvious guy we haven't talked about but we're gonna get to him later is yeah. there any other uh, did that cover the actors that's it uh, do, 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 do. I just have a couple things real quick. For yeah. a long movie, the pace is pretty good. We talked about that. The beginning and end especially. I think mm-hmm. in the middle it drags a couple times, but that first like let's say 30 minutes and last 30 minutes, great. I'm in the whole time. It's fun, it's moving fast. Uh, it's good stuff. Um my last point and frankly I just don't I don't know if we have enough time to talk about this. Uh there is some really cool thematic stuff with this movie, and and actually, I'm just ripping off a podcast that Mike and I both listen to called the Rewatchables. But in that episode where they talk about this, they do mention this cool thematic reading of the movie where you're seeing two different versions of how to live in America. Yeah. Right. How to how to, and the movie keeps talk keeps referencing this. They keep talking about the idea of getting further in America and what that looks like, and you have this one guy who is you know reserved and and ambitious and emotionally stifled you have damon uh, and, and selfish right and then you have this other guy who's gut-centered and vulnerable and they, they actually keep pointing out how vulnerable he is and how in touch with his emotions he is trying to do the right thing whatever but then the key thing is at the end they're both chewed up and spit out yeah and yeah and in that sense there's something really cool in that i'll just be honest i didn't do enough work to like really talk about this but there's stuff like that in this movie that is really cool. And in a sense, we short sell it sometimes when we say that it's a lo- relatively shallow movie. It is compared to Scorsese's other stuff. But I just want compared to note, compared to other similar thrillers, it does have some stuff like that going for it, which is really cool. I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that. But.
1: Well, no. And I mean, I think the depth at which it explores, you know, like you were saying, the American Dream, I do think that's a heavy undertone in which you know not only are they both chewed up by the system that they both are found or find themselves within but they're also pitted against each other so it's like no matter what route you take you're going to be pitted against the people on your same level and destroyed by the process right Mm, Um, yeah and with the hope of one day you know I'll get the nice apartment or I'll get out of the rat race or I'll get to get my identity I'll actually get to find my own identity as DiCaprio keeps kind of saying Um, and it's like almost like the carrot on the stick and really you it's a doomed game from the start it's kind of i think one of the things he's talking about but i also think the themes of mental health and like these things we've been talking about a, a violence and you know it, it it does a really interesting thing where it puts a quote-unquote emotionally intelligent or normal-ish person into settings that normally all we see, the only characters we see in these settings, usually in Scorsese movies, are the sociopaths, right? Yeah. Like, Goodfellas, everyone in the shot is a crazy person other than a victim. So to have yeah. someone playing the gangster alongside these sociopathic gangsters, I do think it has a lot of really interesting conversations on the weight of, like, violence and and fear. and In that sense... Yeah. Uh, more than I maybe would have thought before, almost
0: reminiscent of uh, or pre, pre-saging the Irishman, right? Yeah. Because that was yeah. the whole cool thing with that is that Scorsese took similar situations but brought an emotional gravity that wasn't there before to, to yeah. things he had filmed before. So I never thought about that, but that's a great point. It, it's exploring a different, uh, a, d- a different angle to that sort of situation because it does – I mean, it comes up a lot with him, obviously, but – Yeah, that's a great point. I love that. Cool. Do you have anything else for uh, why this movie works?
1: Yeah, I got two. I mean, one, we can't go too far without saying just the city of Boston. I think it was such a great choice to pick Boston for the kind of basing of this city. Or, sorry. Yeah. I think it was such a great choice to pick Boston as the basing of this movie. I just think the character of the city is a perfect fit for uh, the script in particular, but also just kind of the characters that these people are trying to yeah. bring to life. So um also I, I just don't feel like there are a ton of crime movies with Irish gangsters at the center. That's become more popular since the departed. It feels like, but at the time it was kind of like, Oh, it's kind of like a Godfather movie or a Goodfellas movie, but with Irish people and you know, Bostonians. Yeah. So that, I don't know. There's just something that was really unique when this movie came out that I think really worked about that choice of setting.
0: Yeah. Just real quick too. I, I, I was just reading, actually, this guy talking about uh, story crafting, and he points out specificity creates characterization, right? Hmm. And with that in mind, you know, because people like us often talk about, like, yeah, you know, the cliche is always the city as a character, but the city is a character in this movie. But that's why we talk about it, I think, because because if this was a generic big city, you know, it's... And it's just about like, oh, it's a police department and it's these guys in the police department. It just loses so much character, right? It just, it doesn't have the same tangibility, the same, yeah, I don't know how to say it, characterization. It, that having that specificity and not, it's not just like, it's not like, oh, we're in Boston. It's key to the plot. It comes up constantly about characters, about where they come from, about where they identify with, the people they identify with. And, and that makes it, so much better characterized. You you yeah. buy into the world so much more. So that's yeah. what's important. That that's why that's so valuable. And you're right. It's a it's a huge part of why the movie works.
1: Yeah. Um so yeah the last thing that we have to talk about is the ending run of this movie because it, it to me it's some of Scorsese's best work. And when I say the ending run, what I really mean is the rooftop on. Uh just that final stretch. Uh I I i remember sitting in the theater and just like you're so amped up when dicaprio calls damon on the phone and he's like i've got you you two-faced rat or whatever and he's just like eating him alive and damon's falling apart um and you feel so vindicated when he hits him in the face and he's just like the charges are never gonna stick and he's like i don't care if they stick and then they're going down the elevator, and Damon's like, just kill me. Uh, and you're wait, like – And you,
0: you left out, too. Like, it's so tense when Anthony Anderson comes yeah, out. Yeah, And they're yeah. doing that little Mexican standoff, and he's trying to convince them, you got to believe me. I know this is your sergeant, but you got to believe me. And they just – and it's just silent as he's just walking him back slowly into the elevator and – slowly pushes it's just it's a, such a long moment but you're right keep going and then they're yeah, going down yeah and the elevator yeah
1: and he's yeah uh, he's i am killing you right is and mm-hmm. damon starts weeping and then the elevator door opens and and it's such a great shot because he, he intentionally does the camera straight ahead facing him so you see nothing and then his head just explodes and yeah. um i still remember not believing it happened at first. And then the next scene is his body on the ground, the elevator door trying to close on it. I remember people in the, uh, the theater, like yelling in surprise. Yeah. Like, you know, when I saw the dark night on an opening night at midnight and the Joker does the pencil trick, like the theater cheered, this was like the opposite reaction in which there were people <laughs> just like, Oh my Lord. Like just, yeah, just in shock. It just was like such a shocking, what the hell is going on moment? I, I literally felt like I was in shock, right? And then the fact that it's a tertiary character that kills him is just brilliant. It's such a brilliant choice because that whole run is meant to feel, make you feel like everything is completely upside down, like you're supposed to feel so blindsided all the way down to the person who actually pulls the trigger, Right. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's just, it's just In that just sense, awesome. it's
0: almost, in that sense, it's almost reminiscent of Goodfellas in that he's so good at destabilizing you, right? Yeah. He's so good at, at knowing here's what they expect. Here's how I'm going to cut across that and put them into a, a different and just completely change the way this, of you know, the nature of what it is you're watching. I am sad. That is obviously the biggest thing I missed out on by not seeing this in theaters, Um I also want to say, and this is now getting like real bad, but I almost feel like I knew that was coming and I don't know why, but like I almost feel like I had that spoiled for me because I don't, I just don't have the memory, the sense memory of being shocked by it. Um, I, I really think I knew it, but honestly, even knowing it, it's still, it's still an amazing moment. And you're right. Yeah. It, it's just this, uh, it's just this great, like, coming out of nowhere it's just who does that with reply? it's almost like like Game of Thrones which I'm hesitant to mention because it it got to such trash later on but Game of Thrones does this a couple times right and yeah it, and it works and you're like wait you can do this in a narrative you can just yeah you can just you can go that direction it's so unexpected I actually this is a really small thing but going back a little bit you said that it's so gut-wrenching when he dies and in a weird way like I actually have always felt like positive about the character's death not because i wanted him to die but there's something kind of nice that after struggling for the whole movie he's finally semi-victorious like he's in a good place and then he gets shot so that's a bummer but there is almost like this weird um and fraud to that that he's like i finally did it and then he gets killed and then later on spoilers Matt Damon is at such a low moment and that's when his character gets killed. And there's something kind of... Because, again, the movie keeps drawing comparisons between the two. Yeah. And so there's something that's so meaningful in that, I think, that yeah. That he has finally come up and has summited and made this important moment or this victory for him. And that's his mood when he dies. And, yeah, it's it's such a good... I don't know. It's such a good plot development. It, and it's, you know, it's great. I and you it. know
1: what Matt Damon's mood was? He went to pet a dog and the dog pulled away from him. <laughs> and the dog, My the dog favorite dog. moment of that final scene is when it's just like I, kicking him while he's down. <laughs> Scorsese is like, you sack. The dog won't even let you pet him.
0: <laughs> I even love the, uh, I even love, we should just talk about that last second, Cause yeah. obviously it's, it's such a, I, I should ask Did people cheer the movie when um it pans up and it's Wahlberg's character. I would Yes. Have.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, that yeah. that is they so.
0: Because you know what's going to happen. You know, and you at that point you forget he's in the movie a little bit just because it's been so long he hasn't even come up at all, um, and you just know what's about to happen. You're just like, oh yes. Oh yeah. man, that's so cool.
1: I love. First and yeah, good. First, there were laughs at the footies, which is yeah, a epic move by Scorsese to start with the footies <laughs> and then move up. but but yeah no people cheered yeah you're right it's just like kind of like yes the vulgar horrible human being knight in shining armor is here to finally that's exactly what it is it's a
0: knight in shining armor (laughs) rolling into the movie at the end just to set things straight yeah um i love when what does david say says okay yeah like he's like there's this resignation sentence in him just gives it's like he yeah he's just like you know i guess fine at this point this is what's happening well, and it's oh, the
1: only God. time that he doesn't try to talk his way out of being trapped, you know. Yeah. Which is kind of his thing. The whole movie is just a talk and talk and talk, and mm-hmm. it's another great kind of dichotomy that he creates in that scene, which is all he can say because he's just broken at this point. Is just okay.
0: And it's funny because as far as there supposedly is a rivalry between Damon and Wahlberg, which is a funny sentence to say because you're like, in what possible metric would Wahlberg be a rival to Damon? Yeah. But. This scene is maybe the only reason why that that argument has legs. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, no, Wahlberg comes out on top. I that <laughs> checkmate. That guy, checkmate. Like he's he's like, yeah, I did I did kill you in the most satisfying possible way at the end of the Departed. It's like, okay, well, you know, um, cool. Well, let's move on. We're gonna have a few thoughts. I think. I mean, I don't. know. I don't have as many as I may have thought I would have. But let's talk about what holds this movie back. <laughs> we, we we there's an albatross here. There's a name yeah. that I think we've only said once so far in this whole Ugh. episode, uh, and that of course is our boy Jack Nicholson is in this movie as uh, the mob boss Frank Costello. Man, what can you say? Uh, well, let's start here. He doesn't get nominated for anything. Oh my lord! And and that's kind of incredible. Like it's because damning. this is Jack Nicholson. This is one of the best actors ever period and this is a role that is meant to be like the godfather role of the movie and he doesn't get nominated and that says a lot uh i don't know i i mean here's what i wrote i'm just gonna read what i wrote and then you can you can cook for a minute but uh the most damning criticism i have is that he's not fun I actually can forgive the character being goofy and weird and off putting and all of that, but you should be enjoying it when he's on the screen, right? Yeah. You should be like, I'm enjoying. He's Jack Nicholson's going crazy with this. I'm having fun. This is, I'm-, I'm enjoying this movie, but I honestly just don't like the movie when he's on screen. Like yeah. I kind of just skip those scenes. Like by myself, I don't watch any of the scenes. Uh, if I'm just rewatching the movie casually where it's mostly him in the scene. Um, Honestly, the movie gets way better once he dies. That's really damning. That's not what you want from that character, from this essential, very central role to the movie. I don't know how much of that is is the writing or the actor. I People smarter than me say that's the acting, that the role had strength in it, and he mm-hmm. brought all these weird things and all these – I don't know. I just don't know what he's doing, I guess. it's It's yeah. so – off putting in a bad way is what i would say about his performance in this movie what do you got
1: yeah i mean the line i wrote next to his name is wtf is he doing in this movie so yeah. i'm kind of right where you're at i i agree not not even being nominated for an oscar is damning because it's i'm not sure if you remember this but you know the character that this is based on uh whitey what's his name whitey bulger Bulger? Mighty Bulger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was in the news and stuff at the time, or he at least an interest in him from the public had really picked up at the time. And it was just one of those things where were just like, this is made to win an Oscar. This is literally you put someone who's really highly viewed by the Academy into a role playing a hot character, a hot real life, or based on a real life, kind of quasi-based on a real life person who is playing, like you said, a godfather-esque role. Like, how do you not... It's it's literally crafted for Oscar bait, and he was a completely ignored at award seasons, and it's yeah. because the performance is just so confused. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on with his accent. You know, <laughs> it does it's just disappear. All over the place. It's so strange. Um, he has one these... moment.
0: One moment he is he is like this city Boston guy, kind of. It's maybe not a good accent, but he's clearly doing it. And the next sentence, he's just Jack Nicholson. Like yeah. it just sounds like Jack Nicholson. I'm like, "What? What are we doing?" Yeah. Here?
1: Yeah, and like and there's all sorts of stuff if you want to research it where he even makes some choices in the film where like, you know, the porn theater scene, he was the one supposedly he demanded that to add supposedly. The dildo. Yeah. And it's just strange. It's just like yeah. and he has this weird, you know, vibe throughout the film where he's almost like glossed over, like he's almost out of it. And yeah. And he's—I don't know. I—I I remember on this rewatch, what really struck me is that if it—if they weren't covering him in blood or having him play with a severed hand at some scenes, he wouldn't be intimidating. He's just yeah, kind of I agree. loony, you know. And if this character is not intimidating, then you're not doing it right. I mean, you're just you're just missing you know, something.
0: So, the two scenes I think about that really demonstrate what we're talking about, the first, both of them are with DiCaprio, which is part of why I think about them because DiCaprio blows them off the screen in both scenes. Yeah. Uh, the first is when he first meets him and he does the interrogation, he he hits his broken arm with a boot, you know? Yeah. Are you a cop? Are you a cop? Uh that perfectly demonstrates what you were just talking about. At no point in it like DiCaprio's is, is selling it. He's like screaming, he's like in, he's great. I I don't find him uh Nicholson's character like scary or interesting or like intimidating or like you think about maybe like Polly from Goodfellas or or actually yeah. even better, um uh, Jimmy from Goodfellas, or you know, uh uh the any character from The Godfather. You just think about all these other big crime lord characters. And it's like, yeah, they're on the screen and there's just a presence. You're just you're in it. You're just terrified. Yeah. It just doesn't land. You just don't care. You don't even notice he's there. The other one I think about is when um and you mentioned the scene earlier, but when uh he's doing his whole speech about the rat and feeling crazy about it. And and uh, DiCaprio is there, just losing his mind. And you're right, DiCaprio is acting his heart out. Uh, that whole monologue is just so weird. He does like those. He that's the one where he famously does the the rat like like snarl yeah. like the tea, yeah, yeah the rat. And it's just so weird and dumb. Yeah. And you're like, you're like I just, uh, this is not this. I don't know what this character is. It's so weird. I don't yeah. like it at all. And it single-handedly and- keeps the movie from being like an all-time classic. I think.
1: Oh yeah. Agreed. I mean, it's just, it's the biggest flaw in the movie. It's my first thing I wrote down. It's the first thing I think of when I think of the flawed nature of it, which is wild because the plot has some serious issues too, but it's just such a miss. And when we say, yeah. when we say that when this movie hits, when casting it hits and when it misses, it misses, this is what we're talking about, you know? Um, totally agree. I also Do you just, know, uh, I can't move off well, this character real quick without saying uh, what in the literal hell is going on with the cocaine prostitute scene.
0: Yeah, that's so weird. Same yeah. thing.
1: It's like you just have to throw huh? that in there. <laughs>
0: well, and, and it's worth noting again. Like I, I feel like we're starting to attack him, which I, I feel bad about. But again, like all, I, from what I read, a lot of that was Nicholson putting that in. Like he insisted yeah. on the uh, having the prostitutes. He insists on them being different races. On a white and a black prostitute in that scene, which are like, what? Okay. Why? Why are you? Yeah, exactly. You're just like, what? What? What is this? What are? You, what do you think you're making? Um. It's just weird. I don't know. I don't like it at all. Uh trick I, I might have brought this up in straight thoughts. But I'll just ask you now. Origin do you know who Scorsese wanted in the role? No. Al Pacino. Turned it down. Ugh. Ugh. What do you think? Because I know not, you're not the biggest not any better. I think you say that <laughs> you say that he would have been a lot better. I think he would have I think he would have landed this. If nothing else, think about the metric I gave you earlier. If nothing else, um, it would have been way, way, way more fun. It would have been a fun movie. Uh, hey, yeah. I told you to bury him in the marsh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's incredible. Uh, oh, boy. Okay. Well. I think we covered that a little bit. Let's move on. What are, Mike? Uh, I'll let you take this a little bit. What? What other? What else you got? Why this movie doesn't work? Does the plot of this movie make sense? No. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> <Just not. laughs> just, uh, just wanted to cover that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We could do ten minutes on this, but I kind of think we should just say, yeah. What the pro? The microprocessors yep.
1: thing is <laughs> is wild and John, just. John, John, I. Re- <laughs> So my point was, does the plot of this movie actually make sense? And then right under it, I wrote microprocessors question <laughs> <laughs> mark. It's such a weird,
0: it's not only a weird plot point, but it's a very dated plot point. It's very yeah. 2005, like, computers. And you're like, I guess, I don't know. Like, <laughs> the Chinese. Um so weird. Um, the, the whole thing with the FBI stuff, too, is like kind of ill-formed or doesn't pay off, maybe. I don't no. know. It's... There's a lot of little plot details that don't go
1: anywhere. I feel and, like they throw yeah. in the FBI thing. I mean, there's some thematic resonance there that I don't particularly care about, but I think it's mostly to give Matt Damon a reason to kill him in the end. But I actually think it's more interesting and Matt Damon kills him because he realizes it'll advance his career in that moment. So it's yeah. just kind of like a him being a snitch. I'm like, what does this do for the movie? Like, and they don't, like you said, it's half baked. It's not like they spend any amount of time on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I uh I totally agree. I think
1: yeah, I don't know. I would have more thoughts on that,
0: but yeah. It's just weird. It's just yeah, it's it's little decisions like that, like we were saying earlier that hold it back from just being all time classic. Um let me see. So yeah, I don't know, this this is weird a phrase. You can agree, you can disagree. Is it me or does this me does this movie deal incredibly clumsily with issues of race and sex or sexuality? Yes, uh, I think they are themes in the movie. I don't necessarily understand what it's trying to say about them. Uh, it actually, in fact, I would go further. It feels totally incoherent, yeah. like because because something weird keeps coming. Like, I honestly don't even know how to explain it. It keeps coming up, like like sexual performance keeps coming up, and and because uh, you know the the scene with Vera Farmiga and and Matt Damon's character, and homosexuality kind of comes up, but again in just a really clumsy way that I'm like. Maybe are they just trying to be like, oh, well, this is how Boston people talked about this stuff back then, I guess. But it's just weird. And same thing with race. It's just weird. And I'm like, I, I just don't think. I think if they were going to put it in at all, they should have put more thought into those themes. And instead, yes. it just feels slapdash and, and weird. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. but
1: No, yeah. it They're ham-fisted. They're thrown in. Um, You know, this, one of my stray thoughts was the question, why do all the bad guys in this movie have some weird problem with producing progeny? It's obviously a theme, you know, Yeah, even at the end talking to Jack Nicholson's like, you have no sons, you know, and obviously he has sexual performance issues and which is another just strange character trait to just throw in. It's just weird. Yeah. Like you said, it, it feels like they're trying to say something, but the fact that I have no idea what it is when it comes to sexuality um, is not great. It's just not great writing. And the same is also true with race. I mean, I, I brought, I was going to bring that up talking about the microprocessor scene where it's like, there's just a lot of racial slurs thrown around yeah. towards all comers in this movie. Um, the entire conversation with Jack Nicholson in the Chinese. Characters I was going to say also like, a little point what? for
0: Jack Nicholson. I could have mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. When he keeps yeah. doing the thing in this country and at that moment, I'm like, wait, was this a theme in this movie? Cause if so, I missed it and I don't know why it keeps coming up. 100%. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So yeah, yeah.
1: I, it it just feels it feels forced. It feels half thought through. It doesn't Again, I think you said it really well. If it, it feels like it's clearly something that they intend to be a theme, I just don't know what it is. And I think yeah. it's cuz it's poorly communicated. So Yeah. I think it's totally a, agree. I think it's a fair criticism.
0: Um I only have two more criticisms. They're both pretty short. Uh encounter ca- to what I said earlier about it having mostly a good pace. I do think it's too long. It's yeah. two and a half hours and yep. somewhere around the middle for me, like, even though I actually like this scene, but around the time that they're chasing each other through Chinatown and actually, I guess maybe before that, the porn theater, really. Yeah. Uh, that's could've pretty, that. that's the point where I start to kind of like check out. I'm like, why am I watching this movie? Can I skip ahead?
1: Could can I, can I cut that scene? Yeah. Cut that and scene. Cut the prostitute That's scene. around
0: the point. Yeah. that's That's when it starts feeling a little bit long. Uh, my only other point, and this has been commented on many times, you mentioned earlier the movie starts with, quote-unquote, a rock and roll song, which I should dock you some points for because the rock and roll song is Gimme Shelter. Um, but, I mean, the notable thing and why it's in here, it doesn't work. First of all, this is Scorsese for the third time using this yeah. song prominently yeah. <laughs> in a movie, Goodfellas and Casino. And not only that, but I forgot until the most recent rewatch, he double dips in this movie. Yeah. It starts with Gimme Shelter and about halfway through Gimme Shelter comes back. And I'm like, Scorsese, my guy. And again, everyone else has said this, but seriously, man, there's other songs. Like stop. Yeah. Stop using this song so much. It's a good song. We all get it. But oh my God.
1: Yeah. This is a mix of both a what didn't work and a stray thought, which is just a Scorsese only know five songs. Um the soundtrack to this movie like has some again, it's hit and miss. It has some yeah. great choices, like the shipping off to Boston was such a bold choice. It's so effective. That's a
0: great choice. Uh and I was gonna say goodness. comfortably numb is amazing in that yeah. scene, and and that's really good. Yeah. But
1: it's like, dude, you you have the same five songs in every movie you've ever made. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Like I kind of want to see someone. Bit. Superimpose it into taxi driver just to like <laughs> just to throw it in. Because it, it is kind of strange. Happen. I mean, and 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 this is why it doesn't work. It's because I acknowledge that while watching the movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I if he used that song in multiple movies and I didn't catch it, probably not a a thing, right? Sure. It's kind of like a plot hole where it, you know, if you don't catch it while watching it. But, like, when those songs that he uses over and over again come up in this movie, it distracts me. I'm just like, really? Again? <laughs> like, we're doing yeah. this again? Um, it, so, yeah, you said yourself, I, it, just, it takes you out strange. of the movie. You're like, you're yeah. like, oh, all right, uh,
0: this is what we're doing. Cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's weird.
1: Weird. It's I know. It's weird. I don't really get it. Um, I got a couple to close. Yeah. You know, really quick one is continuing with the hit and miss. There's just some, like, weird shot choices in the movie that feel like he's just throwing stuff against a wall that don't always land for me like the scene sure. where matt damon comes up the police station and it starts with like the circle around him and everything else is blacked out and then it zooms out it's i actually really... really like that shot so but I, I don't know so what, it, I... what purpose does it serve is kind of the I don't question know. It's, just kinda, it's just kind of a cute little shot he's just doing stuff but <laughs> i recognize you're right by the way i
0: there's some of those that i'm just like i just think are fun I'm not I'm not ultimately I'm not disagreeing with you I'm like yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. weird stuff like stuff like that comes out of nowhere and you're like huh huh
1: but uh, it, and it, well, it is yeah. it's hard to say it doesn't work because it the vibe of the movies he's throwing stuff against the wall that's why it works it's just yeah. there are moments where I'm just like okay that's a choice yeah right but you're not gonna get I the agree. good stuff without kind of the random other stuff that I, maybe I don't like that that much sure. so um, the other major one is you know we just have to talk about the th- therapist plot line. Oh, yeah. I actually, why didn't I? Oh, I know I didn't have that in mind. It, it'll come up in my stray thoughts a little bit, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I would go as far as say as it's entirely worthless, except for the scene where she sits down with him for the first time. And that's like one of my favorite scenes of the movie. But yeah. literally, you could have kept that scene and not kept. This is a central character in the movie, you know, yeah. um, and again, she's good in it. But her character, it seems so poorly written. Again, she's a character where a lot of those things we were talking about with race and sexuality come up where you're like, I think you're trying to say something with this character, but I don't know what it is. And ultimately I came away from her entire plot line just feeling like it's forced. Like it just doesn't really belong in the movie. And I do think a lot of the excess length comes from that hammed in extra kind of thread that has to be central to the plot. So um, that was the other major one I had. Yeah. But I, think, I don't know uh, if you have
0: thoughts. I think, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I do think you need something to connect the two characters later in the movie, as in to connect Leo and Matt Damon. Yeah. I don't think that was the best option. So, yeah, I I agree. But I think that's the role that they are trying, that they're using her to do of like, we need something, something besides this job thing that connects the two of them. Um, But no, I agree. I I think it's, and and so actually you didn't even talk about the thing I talked about. It's also, uh, I have a pet peeve for movies uh, inaccurately representing therapy. And this is like maybe one of the worst possible offenders. She's a terrible therapist. She's what terrible. therapy is like yeah. and that's not how therapists talk or act therapists don't say how do you feel about that and aren't flummoxed when people are mad and angry like that's and it's it's again going back to our metric earlier in the movie i noticed i'm like that's not what therapists are like like that's stupid like what what is this There's like a cartoon of a therapist this is so stupid uh that's always bothers me it's a peppy. Yeah. so i don't know that that uh yeah, I will. I'll go ahead and cut ahead to my stray thoughts a little bit because I just thought you'd appreciate this. Uh, apparently, Vera Formiga met with a um, a public counselor, therapist person, so as the same kind of role. And uh, that person, after reading the script, said, "Basically, your character does everything wrong." Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just that's just accurate. It's just like yeah, accurate. that is yeah,
1: that is correct. So yeah, that kind of sums that up. Um, anything else? What didn't work? I've got one last one. I saved it for the end because I think it's going to be a battle. I'm ready, ready? because I,
0: I want you to know I already have my response written out.
1: Yeah. Go for it, Mike. Do it. Let's, Let's go. go. Let's The go. rat on the railing at the end of this okay. movie is stupid. It's stupid, okay. John. It's stupid.
0: Okay. Let's talk
1: because every <laughs> person, every every, movie goer, every every
0: casual moviegoer, all these people are like, oh, blah, blah, blah. The rat's so dumb. Why didn't anyone? T-? And it's like, okay, guys, listen. I'm going to do my piece and then you do your piece because we all know. So we're talking about the very last shot of the film. It pans up from Matt Damon's dead body in the courthouse (laughs) and a a rat walks across the railing and everyone became, you know, John movie critic over here. I'm like, oh, Scorsese, that's so stupid with your thematic. My point is, look. If this was a super serious, intensely characterized movie, if this was Goodfellas or Taxi Driver or whatever, then yeah, that would be dumb as hell. This movie is a comic book. This is a stupid movie. Why are all you people getting so mad at that? Like that was the dumbest thing in the movie. Did you even see the microprocessor scene? I just don't accept that criticism at all. It's so because I'm like i'm just like this is so the whole movie is stupid i'm okay with a little joke at the last shot that's like yeah i'm okay with that that's my take if this was a serious movie yeah of course but this is not a serious movie this is a dumb movie so it's appropriate that it ends with a kind of silly dumb shot i'm fine with that i think it's great you do your do you even have anything do you have a response it's if stupid I silence you?
1: it's stupid okay. Here, I'll meet you halfway, okay? Can I okay. meet you halfway? Maybe me halfway. Meet me halfway, yeah, let's do it. I would accept it if the rat was wearing a little Red Sox hat okay. as he went across and then said, Go Sox! And then the movie ended. <sighs> if it went into full parody. And then it just played shipping out boss Boston for the eighth time.
0: <laughs> imagine. Imagine that movie plays. Imagine I'd the response of the audience. <laughs> not, I even think there's it. a little... I even think there's a little bit of thematic resonance because it's supposed to be like like the he's supposed to have such a nice apartment and ultimately there's rats in it. I'm there. I'm fine. This is a, it's a great moment. You're uh, all Great. Wrong. Are you are you just amping it up now? <laughs> I'm amping it up. This is by the way uh, for for our listeners. This is how Mike and I argue though that like when one of us is forced into a position, we start tripling down on it.
1: We Start actually guess- believing it. <laughs>
0: I do believe it's not a bad scene. Sure, you do. John. You are correct in the call out. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say it's a good scene. It's not a bad scene though. All you people are wrong. All you people don't even know what themes are in movies. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm done. I'm done with that. I'm done with that point. Do you have anything else? No, I'm done. Okay. I'm glad we. I'm glad we we sorted that out on the podcast. I think the listeners will agree. Frankly.
1: I feel if like had, my argument was way more compelling.
0: If either of us had the energy for it, I would say, uh, let's try to make a poll and see if people agree, who people agree with. But uh, I, I don't think either of us would put in the time to do it's that. It's easier but,
1: assuming that I'm right.
0: It, I, You know, you say that, but I think i made the better points. And I think I think the feedback will bear that out. So with that, uh, let's move on. <sighs> we were both so primed for that too. I had it written down. I had all the notes. Let's move on. Uh, we've each prepared some stray thoughts, just stray thoughts, uh, just little little points about the movie. We just kind of trade back and forth. Uh, okay, here we go. That young Matt Damon is perfectly cast. That guy looks exactly like yeah. him. It's crazy. The shot where it goes from his face straight to old to like Matt Damon, it, it's nuts. I'm like, how'd it's they uncanny. do that? Is, that? is that his son or something? I don't know. It's weird. But that's a great shot, or that's a great casting.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's it's really unnerving. Actually, it's kind of creepy. Um, yeah, I'm just going to get my the last of my Jack Nicholson slander out of the way. <laughs> he refused to wear a Red Sox hat in this movie because he's like a Lakers and I don't know, Yankees or Dodgers fan or something stupid. And it just makes me resent him where it's like everyone else is going all in on this Boston thing. And he's just like, I won't wear a Red Sox hat because I like sports. It's just dumb you're you're when you're right you're right mike ghost
0: socks it is funny because i'm not mike knows i'm obviously not a um huge sports guy but i even recognize i'm like that's so dumb you're you're, like like what are we doing here you're you're making a movie let's keep on this plot for or let's keep on this thought train for a second because i have one other last jab at mr nicholson uh, do you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the theory, there's there's a theory that right before Scarface, Al Pacino was kidnapped and replaced with a much worse actor. Are we sure that didn't happen to Jack Nicholson right before Batman? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Somewhere around 1998, are we sure that like maybe his twin brother, who was never much of an actor, Nicholson, was like, you know, I want to retire, but I want to keep making money. Let me get my twin brother in here. He doesn't know how to act. Uh, just be crazy, be high all the time, maybe, and uh, this will be great. I'm gonna make more money. Yeah, honestly, but... I never, I never even liked this Joker. I'm, I'm gonna oh, say yeah, it. I think it's un- insanely overrated. I, I think yeah. it's a pretty boring character. I don't like it. So yeah, the only, I know, pro-
1: I've, I've, the, the only problem with your argument is how do you explain the bucket list then?
0: <laughs> I don't know why, but I knew you were gonna reference that. Why? <laughs> why is that? you I feel like you've gone to that joke before too. Why that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I think the last—I mean, I, frankly, I haven't seen enough of his movies to really state this—but um, *The Shining* I think is maybe the last role of his that I'm like really blown away by. Well, and everything since that came—that like,
1: came, ah. came before *Few Good Men* and stuff. I mean,
0: oh no, no you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. So, okay. I, you know what? You know what? We've disrespected Jack Nicholson a little bit
1: here. Let's put let's put some respect on the name he's also amazing. the best president in movie history in mars attacks so you know oh my god <laughs> there's
0: that what are, why do you why'd you do that i was just saying <laughs> let's respect the name and then you're throwing out mars attacks what are you doing mike how dare you frankly <laughs> we need to stop this <laughs> we need it. to stop this this, this, is this is bad
1: one of the greatest actors who's ever lived <laughs> oh no uh okay go ahead what do you got um does any accent sound better saying the f word than the Boston accent? I mean, obviously not. It's it's incredible. And it's like it. I I read somewhere that there's like 260 variations of the f word said in this movie, <laughs> and it's it sounds wonderful every time. I just love the Boston accent. I believe it's, it's a record
0: for best picture. Uh, oh it um, has to gonna, be what would be in I, contention <laughs> i don't know i don't think i can't think of anything like because it's not Scorsese's most... Millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i'd watch that cut of the of somebody that'd be a better movie um scorsese has movies with more but no other movie that's one best picture so yeah, yeah i think i think yeah. it's gotta be um why does dr madden not turn in sullivan at the end of the movie uh, I've always wondered that seems seems out of character. It seems like, like, cause she obviously really, doesn't care about him anymore. So I don't know why
1: she doesn't just. She's real upset that she couldn't get a good lay from him. So she's that, just like, that time must to be die. Time, time to go. Just,
0: maybe <laughs> she Boston, knew
1: it's that Catholic guilt, John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My other fan theory is that she tipped off uh, dingham. And so she, oh, I think that's, Im-
1: she knew. I think that's implied. Seriously.
0: Yeah, because I, I never
1: thought that was implied. He leaves he leaves all the evidence with her. DiCaprio never says he's sending it to Dingham.
0: But see, I always assume Dingham just this is actually very fascinating then. I always assume Dingham just kind kind of intuited that it had to come back to the the one guy that walked out of this alive had to be the mole. Oh, like no. it was just impossible for it to be anything else. I just thought you knew it.
1: I think there's just instructions in that packet that he leaves that says, if I die, get this to Dingham," And I think she does. I don't think she knows that he's going to kill Damon's character, but. Um, okay. Well, wow. I, that, I, I definitely. That's interesting. I definitely think perceived that's heavily that. implied.
0: That sounds, that, that sounds right. Yeah. It's just weird. i never noticed that. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, look at that. Learn new things every day. Learn how to watch movies. Huh? There you go.
1: Yeah. Film, film theory right up here. <laughs> yeah. If you're the most famous mob leader in Boston and you're grooming a cop to secretly go undercover working for you as a mobster, would you show up to his graduation? Uh,
0: that's yeah, that's tough. That's a tough okay.
1: one. Just curious. And uh,
0: to go further, did no one in like, cause that, and that's the state police, right? So like yeah. they all, they're all in the midst of these kinds of investigations. No one noticed that? Oh, they're tailing him
1: the whole movie. I guess yeah, not, but to apparently not graduation, then.
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> apparently at that one moment. Actually, this wasn't a straight thought, but I just want to point this out. Uh I don't believe that Eddie like like if they're tailing all these people so much, how do they get away with meeting their moles so often? It's know, crazy. Yeah. Like like they're it, it doesn't jobs. really add up. Um do Boston cops slash criminals speak with so many literary and Latin quotations? <laughs> it's like it happens a lot it's like seven or eight times in this movie and i'm like i just i just don't think that's a real thing that these characters would do oh no uh yeah just, it's like i love
1: not. i love the back and forth between nicholson and DiCaprio when he's like do you know john lennon and he's like he's the president <laughs> he's the president before <laughs> he's talking about the beatles uh, or whatever. Yeah. You're, just like, what? you're like no one talks like this this is wonderful no, they don't um yeah, no, I don't know, John. They probably do. They're probably pretty right. artsy folks. So Okay, great, yeah. Um, Shout out everything to about Boston. Everything about Jack Nicholson's character and behavior tells me that he is very educated and full of class. So <laughs> there's that. Ah, um, beautiful. The central plot of this movie revolves around DiCaprio being too intelligent to be a cop and thus is given a special assignment. Like how big of a dig is that at the police officers who yeah. Yeah. <laughs> operate in That's... our country? <laughs> you're an
0: astronaut, you're no cop. Yeah, great moment. Um, be a cop, huh? have cell phones ever been so critical to a movie plot? <laughs> they come, it comes up constantly in this movie. Like, I, I, I genuinely don't phones. know how to plot this movie before a cell phone. No, nah, um, yeah, which does dovetail. If you, it's okay, I'm just gonna hit two real quick because it does yeah. dovetail into has there like the microprocessors is pretty unbelievable. <laughs> I guess I can phrase that question. This what's less to. believable? Yeah. What, what What's less believable? The microprocessors or him texting all of that stuff with the phone in his pocket, being unable to see it. Even in the yeah. day with the days of physical buttons, Mike and I know our young listeners, if we have any, God forbid, um, might not know. But that was a thing. You have physical buttons, and that was certainly possible. But I don't think it's that possible. That's 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 pushing it a lot.
1: Yeah, to answer your question, I wrote the scene where Matt Damon uses a flip phone in his pocket is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's insane.
1: That's all I got.
0: That's all I got too. I was just waiting <laughs> for you just to. Just go. I'm sorry, I, I couldn't follow it up any. I was just like, yeah, it's it's,
1: it's stupid. <laughs> what do you? Get? It is definitely a got? high point for flip phones in cinema. So I there mean, you go. We'll go for it. <laughs> My next one is just Alec Baldwin sure sweats a lot in the Chinese thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's drenched, man. It's just, it's he's a just He's thought, man. <laughs> he's
0: he's he's soaked. What a god. Um we kind of already talked about this, but why does anyone trust or excuse me, why does anyone trust Sullivan um uh, Matt Damon's character? He's just he's know. so shady and yeah. he, Every single person in the department, including Queenan, is like, hey, you're a good guy. We'll keep giving you promotions and making you hire in the department. And I'm just like, really? No one noticed he makes all these weird calls to his dad. He says he <laughs> deflects constantly. He's, he
1: turns off cameras. He, he turns talks off cameras. To criminals yeah, like, and they burn the like, drug house down immediately. No, one, no one connected that thought?
0: It's just insane to me. Yeah. I just don't buy it all. Frankly... It's why, like, I hesitated earlier when you said, how good is this as a cat and mouse movie? Because there's elements like that that I find so unbelievable that it's hard to believe it. Sure. Um And there's a few other things. Again, shout out to my weebs. Death Note is amazing at, like, oh, these Jesus characters Christ. are smart, acting smarter than I would act. No one cares. And that's really cool. Okay. Boo. <laughs> In this movie, the characters are often acting dumber than I think I would act. Sure. And that's annoying. So, yeah.
1: What do you got? Um is Mark Wahlberg's character the least helpful personality to ever be asked to run an undercover agent? I mean, yeah, no comment because I, I don't know, I've never
0: run an undercover department, but it it is I do appreciate very much in that first scene. What does Queenan say? Um Sergeant Dingham has a colorful personality. We all learn to tolerate it. And yeah. I'm like, you you do? Like you like, you're just like, Yeah, this guy's doing good work. Let me just, you you can keep doing this bit. It's not going to get old and frustrating and annoying at any point. We're good.
1: We like it. I just love when DiCaprio calls him in the middle of a panic attack and he's just a dick. And you're just like, he does not respond at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he just, and he's, remember the end of that when DiCaprio is freaking out? He's like, microprocessors. And DiCaprio's like, what? He says, be on the lookout for this, and it's totally non—you know—it's non sequitur completely from what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's on great. the same line, this is my last stray thought, but real quick: um, how much do you want to watch a whole movie that's just Baldwin and Wahlberg's characters? Oh, a lot. I would—I I would watch three straight hours of them, like a buddy cop movie. Just, yeah, just chat, just talking the whole time, but they don't even need to do anything. Just put them in a room. To have him get dinner or something my dinner with Andre but with Bal- the Baldwin and Wahlberg's characters I'd watch the hell out of that that sounds like an <laughs> amazing be great movie. Our trip trip to Italy <laughs> <laughs> oh my that's this is a great movie we need to pitch yeah, this I'd to watch someone it. yeah I'd watch it I'd watch that <laughs>
1: <laughs> they'd probably kill each other at some point early I mean, yeah but that, that
0: yeah, or that'd be the end of the movie either way that's great uh, I'm done you can go ahead what do you got
1: I got, let's see, four more. So, one's just like a plot thing, plot hole. Like, why does DiCaprio leave Matt Damon's office after finding the envelope? Like, why yeah. wouldn't you just go immediately Possibly to Alice Baldwin and, decision movie and say, hey, you know, this guy's the rat. I filled out that envelope. Uh, it just feels dumb. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and relatedly, like, how. <laughs> Was it really that easy to like frame an undercover agent as just deleting them from a computer made in the 80s? Like really? Yeah. That's it? Okay. All of
0: the technology stuff doesn't play at all. I, I you know what? Quick extra stray thought. Special shout out to the FBI agent looking at a screen that shows I think the cell phones that are quote unquote on and when he closes it it turns off and the little dot goes away. I just can't emphasize enough how much none of that makes any sense. is not how <laughs> cell phones work or technology works or anything. That's all, that's all insane.
1: Microprocessors, so John.
0: Microprocessor, And then, uh, but you're right. And then also he presses delete. It's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, cool. That guy doesn't exist in our database. It's like, I just don't think police databases work like that. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Never been one. Yeah. It's crazy. Anyways, another plot point. Why on earth would the other rat cop give Matt Damon his gun? Just a strange choice. Um, that,
0: you know, though, I actually can forgive that one because I think it highlights like how I think there's something interesting there because it's like Damon's character basically is at the point of like, I am now completely on my own. And that yes. guy wasn't there yet and he dies for it. And that's actually kind of interesting to me because oh, he's okay. like, because he says he's like, it's just us now. We got to work together. Yeah. Yeah. So he's stupid because he's like, he does not realize that Damon is now desperate enough to say, I'm not working together with anyone. I am getting yeah. out of this alive and screw everyone else. So I'm actually okay yeah. with
1: that. That's fair. That's fair.
0: Fair,
2: enough.
1: fair enough. Um, Got two more. Yeah. Question is the quote. You don't have any cats. I like that. The strangest line of foreplay you've ever heard.
0: Yeah, it's, it's up there. I do remember thinking, and last night, so I had forgotten a lot of that scene to be honest, and I was very surprised when that was the, the the last words I believe that they say before they do start. Oh, it is. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Completely, none out kicks stuff. on like immediately. It's great.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, wow, that that, I, yeah, no, I guess I agree. That is an interest. It's an interesting choice, but hey, you know what? It works out for him. So more power to more power to him.
1: Yeah, I. whatever works Uh, works. and then this is obligatory at this point (laughs) worse hang mark Wahlberg in this movie (laughs) or the characters from zodiac (laughs) oh no the worst part
0: is i should be prepared but i'm still not it's so it catches me (laughs) off guard every time mike um i'm gonna go back to what i keep going back to which is uh i would still rather hang out with the cop with, with uh uh God, what's the actor's name again? Um, Mo Ruffalo. Ruffalo. I'd still rather hang out with Mark Ruffalo's cop than anyone in this movie. (laughs) Because everyone in this movie would hate me. Like, it's worth (laughs) noting. Like, if I went to a bar with Alec Baldwin and Mark Wahlberg in this movie, they'd make fun of me, uh, curse at me a lot, and either beat me up or just, like, ignore me and walk away. And, like, none of that sounds fun. So yeah, no, I'd, and they're the most fun characters in the movie. You know, I guess I take that back. Queen in seems cool. Yeah, he seems like a, a yeah, that was a guy I do. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, all
1: right. I'd eat I'd eat his lasagna or whatever.
0: Yeah, awkward. whatever his wife had left out. Yeah, it'd be great. oh boy. Well, that was pretty long. Stick around though. After the break, we do have uh, essays Mike and I have each prepared. Uh, stay tuned for that. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, Like I said, in this part of the episode, Mike and I have each prepared essays trying to dive into some aspect of the movie or maybe even just a tangent off the movie to talk about something a little more in-depth. We usually trade off, so Mike, I, I believe it's you this time, right?
1: It is. Okay, well, whenever you're ready, you're good to go. There's something incredibly disconcerting about the feeling that you're being watched. The hairs go up on your neck. The mind begins to race, and all peace flees you. It's a sensation we've all experienced, and it's one that the part is absolutely obsessed with. Its two central characters, Billy Costigan and Colin Sullivan, live with it as their perpetual state of being. Both exist within a constant awareness that they live a lie, and if observed slipping up in that lie just once by a pair of unseen eyes, they will lose everything. And that pervasive sense of being observed and the terror of being found out just lies at the center of the film, and it's what I actually found to be the most human part of it. We, as human beings, have this kind of innate tendency to try and see ourselves through the eyes of others. That is, we try to imagine how others must perceive us, guessing at the expectations and images we think they must hold, projecting onto them our own insecurities, and self-judgments that we hold internally. And in doing so, what I found is that we create kind of this gap, this separation between us and others, between our true selves, who we really are, and the world. It's a gap out of which self-consciousness, the conscious of self, and shame seemingly flows. And then what I find most interesting is that our response to that is to create mass, Personas that we believe play the roles that other people expect from us, that they must desire from us. And those masks inherently create that deep fear that we all know, the floating ever-present dread that others, with the right eyes, when we're not being careful, will see through our masks to the differences we've judged so harshly and tried to hide from the world, no doubt condemning them as unacceptable once seen. And under the weight of those watching eyes that we perceive, we are then crushed by these imaginary expectations, the anxieties of being found out. And out of that perceived separation from other people, we also discover a basis for seeing ourselves or others as fundamentally less or more dignified, which can justify just about any level of abuse. And this is what came to mind as I watched Billy and Colin in The Departed how we so often try to deal with this self-consciousness, fear, shame, and drive for deception. I think Billy captures what is most commonly known as imposter syndrome. It's what happens when we overemphasize the abilities or the character of the unseen other that we presume is observing us, and project onto them our judgments of self. That deep doubt of our own abilities and pervasive sense that we are a fraud in whatever it is we're doing. That voice that whispers you're failing at what you're doing. Why are you even trying to do it? You're an imposter and you're not fooling anyone. Who you really are will be found out in any minute and then no one will love you. That deep separation between who Billy really is and the persona he projects to those around him is what absorbs and eats him alive, creating the character's intense spiral into addiction, anxiety, and that whole self-exhaustion that he wears like a natural suit by the end of the film. To maintain his outward persona, he falls apart internally. As he says to Madeline, you sit there with a mass murderer. Your heart rate is jacked and your hands steady. That's the one thing I figured out about myself in prison. My hand does not shake ever. Steady. And yet, in the small, secluded, unobserved moments of the movie, we watched as his character becomes anything but steady as that internal fear of being discovered breaks him. He pleads the queen, in, I know he's going to find out who I really am, and he's going to effing kill me. He spirals out. He becomes the human embodiment of a rope frayed to just one thread, about to snap. Even as he seemingly gets out alive, all he can seem to verbalize is, I just want my identity back. Which is interesting. Especially in contrast to Colin, who, on the other hand, captures a completely different response to this dread. He oozes arrogance and self-delusion over his own capacity to live his lie, by downplaying the capacity of those he assumes are observing him. He boasts to Frank, would I be getting good at what I do if I didn't already know that? Frank, you gotta trust me, alright? Just trust me. It involves lying, and I'm pretty good at that, right? He's seemingly totally self-assured that he can't be caught because he's too good at playing his part, his persona, and that those unseen observers are too dumb to play there as well. And from that other posture of separation, what we see is not necessarily self-destruction at first, but actually just endless harm flowing onto others. We watch as he gets numerous innocent people killed to prop up this fake mask he wears. He supports and keeps alive a mass murderer, and he destroys those closest to him with seemingly no regret, all sacrificed in the pursuit of keeping the lie alive. And inevitably, what's so ironic is that though he doesn't seem to fall apart, when the charade actually comes close to ending, or when it does in fact end, we actually witness that his moments of cracking prove even uglier than Billy's slow degradation. Their flash floods of terror Sudden complete collapses, where in a moment, the arrogance gives way immediately to frantic panic and pleading. When he's almost caught after meeting Frank, he kills a bystander. When he pleads with Madeline, we watch as he stops believing the very words he's saying as they come out of his mouth. When confronted by Billy, his chest puffing quickly gives way to weeping and begging, just kill me. Even in his final moment, he just gives up and says okay as he stares down Dygma. Both characters attempt to live through what they perceive to be the eyes and judgments of others. Both live within that gap of perceived separation, and both are torn apart by the disassociation that such a life produces. And I'll be honest, as I sought to close this essay, I kind of found myself stuck. This phenomenon seems baked into our humanity and thus its solution feels, paradoxically, both monumental and opaque at the same time. It seems to be a problem that falls into that spiritual maxim, it's simple but never easy. Because the solution is simple. To somehow embrace and live within a unified self. To learn to see and accept myself as I am, and to release any notion that I could ever fully know and control how others might perceive me. To deconstruct my presumed observers, to realize that's a fantasy, a fiction, that my mind creates, to live without an imagined audience. This seems to be the only way that I can ever learn to be comfortable in my own skin and to live within reality as it is. And yet from experience, despite how simple that is to say, it's anything but easy. It's something that I've only begun to even work on naming, yet alone deconstructing in myself, a path that I've only begun walking. And I don't know, maybe that's okay. Maybe just starting is enough. Maybe just seeing and naming that there is a problem, and recognizing that there might be a good goal to strive for is all I need to do right now. Maybe that's the beginning of believing that my capacities are not greater or lesser than anyone else. That I'm no better or worse, that I'm not being watched or observed, that what I place on others are my projections because, quite frankly, no one's watching, unless there is no imposter, that I can be comfortable in my own skin if I would just surrender the lie and the belief that there needed to be an imposter at all.
0: Yeah, Mike, I, I really love those ideas. I love, um, first of all, if nothing else, I don't think I had ever necessarily connected the two different ways, the ways that, that Leo and Matt Damon in this movie represent two different ways of responding to that same sensation, right? Yeah. And, and you know, there might, may or may not be issues with both, but I think, like, zeroing in on the way that, that Damon's character is you know, acting out from this place of fear about who he is, right? Yeah. And is using that as a sign, uh, as an excuse to to have these aggressions and these, um, you know, what, what we would call negative traits against people. I, I wonder, have you ever, and this could even be a personality difference thing, have you ever had like this switch flip in your head when dealing with someone who is, was, um, you know, maybe overly aggressive or overly... Um, yeah, I guess just aggressive where you suddenly realize that they're acting out from a place of insecurity because it always catches me off guard when I fight, whenever that, that, you know, that glass breaks with something when I'm, you know, I have this person who's difficult and suddenly I sort of put the pieces together of, Oh, they're scared as hell. They don't think they can do this. They don't think that they don't think they're supposed to be here. Um, It always surprises me, but it, it, it's not quite always the reason why the people act like that, but it so often is, and it's it's strange to think about. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have any experience with that? I guess is my question.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, my mentor always challenges me to meditate on part of my French, but the way he puts it is, no one wants to be an asshole, and yeah, kind of what he's getting at is you know, the character traits that we so deeply judge, and judgmentalism is a big part of my character defects, but that we so deeply judge are almost always grounded in in a wound or brokenness, a a coping mechanism, a insecurity, like you're saying, in fear. And if we can pause long enough to not just react to, oh my gosh, this person is being so aggressive, right? Um, We can usually recognize that like no one wants to be a jerk no one wants to be a psycho in a you know flying off the handle no one wants to destroy all their relationships and be alone right um yeah it's a wounded person that we're dealing with and that's not to excuse their behavior it's just to understand their behavior right and mm-hmm. and i think that's when you talk about the the glass shattering that happens with me when i'm that happens very quickly with me when i'm healthy because what ultimately allows me to kind of see that deeper reality of, oh, this person's afraid, they, they don't think they should be here, they're insecure, is if I'm in a space where I can be empathetic. Because, yeah you know, one of my deepest realizations of my life through working 12-step stuff was, you know, anger issues and finding out that the root of my anger issues was fear, like I'm afraid. When I get afraid, I try to control things. When I can't control things, I get angry because I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. And it's as simple as that, right? And that—that—that's years to deconstruct through counseling and in, in the works. But, but I know that's there. It's like my anger comes from I'm terrified. I'm a scared little boy, and I'm lashing out, right? Um, and when I'm healthy, and I'm centered, I have that capacity to be empathetic with a hard to love person. And I feel like I get to that point pretty quickly when I'm unhealthy. I just apply it to their character and I'm like, this person's a jerk. They suck." Sure. Right. Um, and it's amazing how you act accordingly based on which of those <laughs> postures you're sitting in. But, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I am with you. It, it, It is wild. How quickly once you see it, you can't unsee it in a person. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, and you kind of just hinted at this. I think it's, it's strange to say this is one of the cool things about, imposter syndrome but uh, one of the interesting things about it is that it's also like so common it's insanely common actually yeah. in fact I, I don't have the number in front of me but I remember reading that it was it's one of the most common sort of psychological effects that affects um, you know professionals particularly professional adults yeah. in, in the working world and it's cool because that can then basically be channeled, if we use that right, into a form of empathy. Because mm. there is that beautiful moment when you realize, oh, these people are just as terrified as I am. Uh, and actually, strangely, the more confident they seem, not again, not one-to-one, but very often when someone is, is posturing so much, it's because they are more terrified than you are. Um, and there's something that is, I, I think... Empowering, but also hopefully humbling. In that, right? That that it it can do. It can be both of that. That on the one hand, it is a little bit empowering to realize no one else has a leg up on me, really, like that much. You know. But then there's also that flip flip side of it, where it's like I'm struggling with the same things that all these other people are. That guy who who's you know a huge, like you said, a huge jerk, and and um, acting out from these places. He and I share the same fundamental. Um, problems. Yeah. Again, like you said, fear. We have, we have basic fears that are just that are so capable of overtaking how our lot, you know, uh, how we respond to things and, and, and something like that. Um, yeah. I, I just think that's a really, it's an opportunity within that. Of, if, if you do suffer from that or if you do have that sensation, it it's interesting watching the ways that recognizing it in other people affects your worldview. Um I was actually in in just one final thought on that, you know, I it's cool to I don't know if you've been on both sides of this. I have, but like A recognizing that in in heroes that you've had mm. and B rec- having p- other people recognize that in you when they didn't know you had that. Yeah. So like the first one, um this is a maybe a weird example, but uh there's this amazing interview or actually it may just be like a written down recount, but I was reading this thing that was talking about Nirvana, actually. And it was talking about Nirvana's Unplugged performance, MTV Unplugged, which, of course, is famous. It's one of the most incredible live performances of any kind you'll ever see, right? Um, The band was terrified going into that, and Cobain was terrified going into that. Cobain actually said to someone like, we're not good enough to do this. Like he, he basically (laughs) kept repeating those kinds of things. He was like, we're just, and you know, he cursed a lot in it. So, but he, he just kept referencing. He's like, we are just not a good enough band to be portrayed this vulnerably and to be this out here. Um, which again, just makes it so like on the one hand, I heard that and I was like confused, but I think the place it took me to is I was like, wow, you know, I, I think about these guys that, that make art or, you know, these people that I respect in any number of ways. And I think, well, they've just always had it all together and they just know how good they are and they just know how effective they are. And it's so interesting when they don't sometimes and when they, you know, again, it's different person to person, but there's so many examples of people who are great at those things, but who don't know it and don't understand it and feel again, just as terrified as we do. Um, on the flip side, it is also, I actually want to say it's funny, um, which maybe says something about my personality, but I have certainly experienced when people will think that I just am extremely confident in something that sure. I'm not. Yeah. yeah. And when, you know, when I've had people come to me and say like, oh, well, you just know how to do this and you've never had doubts about that. And, yeah. and yeah. I, I laugh. I laugh at the conversation because I'm like, are you serious? Have yeah. you met me? <laughs> or you, That's how this works. And it hasn't happened. It hasn't come up that much. But like I said, I think that's the dual side of this is that if you, if you take if you understand this correctly, I think in, in context of the world, it is empowering and it is also humbling. And there's something really cool in that, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, there is. I mean, I think the greatest lesson, um, I've had from being a parent so far is like, no one knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. and it, it's just like such a helpful reminder, which is like, everyone's doing their best. Like no one knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and there's something very freeing, kind of getting to that empowering bit too, which is what a gift you can give people. Uh, You know, you brought up therapy earlier. That's where I found this the most. But when someone takes off the mask and they share the thing that they think is going to be condemned or makes them a fraud, and you're just and you respond with empathy, and you're just like, "Yeah, me too," or um, it's not like that sucks, but you're not a terrible person for that or whatever, you know, it, the healing that takes place in those moments. I'm, I know you've experienced that. I've experienced that. Yeah. What a gift. Like when the, I, when I have opened myself uh, up, taken off the mask, um, and someone has responded with just humanity, it is yeah. literally the most liberating thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and then when you do with others, I mean, I, I don't think there's a greater gift and it's because this imposter thing is so prevalent right yeah um just to say me too in those moments it 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 really is something else but yeah i I think you're spot on
0: back in my high school days I, i played bass in a rock band Of course, we had a small collection of artists that we idolized, artists that could put out anything, and we'd at least give it a shot. One of those acts was the Icelandic band Sigur Rós. And I remember specifically one evening that someone in the band put on a DVD of their latest concert movie, which was called Haima. I'm sorry for whatever I'm mispronouncing there. The movie is about an hour and a half long, and it combines footage from a series of concerts and small performances the band played around their stunningly beautiful home country, right on the heels of a worldwide tour. Now, Sigur Rós are a diverse-sounding band. Sometimes they are loud and distorted and epic and soaring, but sometimes they're quiet and reserved. This movie is almost entirely the latter. It's kind of acoustic, mellow sounds. And something about that mood must have hit us right, because for the most part, I just remember us calmly sitting through the entire movie. We We were enraptured. It was slow, but it was achingly beautiful. But then came the last song. For the last 10 or so minutes, the band launches into a song called Untitled Eight, also sometimes called "Poplagio." Again, sorry for the mispronunciation. The song starts quiet and brooding, but somewhere around the middle, about five or six minutes in, it starts to rise in, in emotion and tension. It crescendos and dovetails in on itself it it goes higher and higher and rises and rises until it explodes into this monstrous driving tearing musical summit symbols crash over heavy distorted guitars that sear the entire soundscape it's honestly incredible it's one of my all-time favorite songs and I think about that movie and I think about that viewing experience all the time because especially when you don't know to expect it it had such a profound impact on me. What I remember was being so blown away by the force of that final song, the way it literally hit like a train. I felt like all the emotions at that end moment of the movie were so heightened because of it. And the key thing to me is that all of the quiet, slow, reserved music which came before so perfectly set up That last song so perfectly elevated and highlighted the intensity of that moment. It's like, imagine going to a concert and let's say that the whole two-hour show, the band is just playing really heavy, loud, intense, distorted music. And, you know, you can measure volume. So let's say that the whole concert is 110 decibels front to back. Now imagine that you go to another concert, but this time the band is mostly quieter. They're mostly more thoughtful. And in in fact, the majority of the show, let's say, is hushed and reserved and whispered and maybe hovering at 80 decibels or 85 decibels. But then in that last song, they, they floor it and they hit 100 decibels. The key thing is that 100 decibel moment coming after this slow, quiet burn will feel so, so much louder, so much more intense than anything you heard at that first concert. So volume and power and intensity are not absolute, they're relative values. You judge them on the basis of what is around them. And I always think about this lesson when I rewatch The Departed, mostly because of one specific scene. Mike and I have already referenced it, but it's my favorite scene in the movie. So Anne has just been killed, Sullivan and Costigan are two moles, know of the existence of each other, but not their identities. Sullivan, on Queenan's cell phone, redials the last number and reaches Costigan. Both of them are aware that they're probably on the line directly with the person that they hunted for so long. And the scene plays out like this. just love that moment so much. The thing is, The Departed is not a quiet movie. From the pop and rock and roll soundtracks against nearly every scene, to the gunshots and screams and cries and overacting and general noise, it's just a raucous, exciting film. It's essentially never quiet, except for that one scene, that one moment. And just to drive home, how intentional and interesting of a decision that is, here's a short excerpt from Infernal Affairs, which is the original Hong Kong film that The Departed is based on. This is from that exact same scene or that same plot moment when the, to- when the two moles have each other on the phone for the first time. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that clip. And in fact, I I think it's maybe the more correct decision or the more obvious decision. I know it's what I would do if I was trying to set up the big climactic moment of my movie. I would give it a dramatic, strong score to accent what a big deal this moment is. But that's the thing. I think Scorsese just understands the relativity of how we judge powerful moments. If his whole movie is loud and bombastic and over the top, then I think he knew that the best way to draw attention to the scene was to make it silent, quiet, reserved. The emotional punch comes down to the difference between that moment and the whole movie that surrounds it. And you know, I obviously think this is key and, and maybe even misunderstood in the context of art, and I'm very interested in it, in it from that angle. But I also think about this concept a lot just when it comes to to life. I think about family trips where a daytime hike or an adventure into the woods was made even better was complemented by a day of rest before or after. I think about past relationships where the most poignant or intimate moments happened in the eye of the storm, in the quiet amidst turmoil and noise. And, you know, I think about the opposite too, times where this lesson maybe didn't play out. I think about family vacations that that didn't let up, that were just nonstop action and movement, and how at the end of that I often feel disconnected and disassociated because I've been operating at 100% for multiple days straight. I think about when work has been a struggle, um, often in the midst of days that were end-on-end nothingness or the reverse, days that were end-on-end unrelenting pressure. And what I'm trying to get at here, the real application of this concept is that we're talking about balance. That's one of those spiritualese words that people like Mike and I throw out a lot, but I'm so attached to the idea because of what I've been talking about here. Balance is how we measure things in our life. Growth and suffering, strength and weakness, progress and regression. None of it makes sense if you don't have something to compare it to, if you don't have a relief. Balance lends greater meaning to when times are bright, and it provides valuable perspective for when times are dark. Balance prevents stagnation and burnout. And for a director like Scorsese, I think balance is just the process of using the whole spectrum of emotional tools available to him. Next time you're watching one of his movies, notice when he uses both extremes of emotion and intensity, when he turns things to the max or when he dials them all the way back. And maybe you'll find the meaning of when that's happened in your life as well. So yeah, Mike, you know, it's I, I, I do need to confess right off the top. Uh, I straight up stole this. So um, there's an amazing, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There's this, an amazing YouTube film critic series called every frame a painting. And uh, it's actually, sadly he he's stopped doing it. So it's only, I think 13 or 14, 10 minute episodes, but he talks, it's a film editor and he talks a lot about, um, you know, different techniques in movies. And he, he talks about the way Scorsese uses silence because it's not just this movie. Hmm. He actually does do this a lot. The other example, there's actually two other great examples. One is the last temptation of Christ, which you and I have talked about, but yeah, That one's cool because it's actually the loudest moment of the movie when he's hanging on the cross. There's like this roar that just keeps escalating. Yeah. And then it's followed by the quietest moment in the movie. It goes silent. Yeah. um, When he, you know, the little girl comes and tempts him and he goes off the cross and everything like that. Uh, The other famous one is Raging Bull when uh, Jake's last fight, he's in the ring. And um, right when I forget who's fighting him, but right when that guy is basically about to just beat the hell out of him and, and yep. Jake is sort of giving himself up to that. The movie goes completely silent once again. Yeah. Yeah. Um I just I'm so fascinated by that idea by the way that, you know, cuz cuz I just think there's something intuitive about people thinking, well, if you want to create intensity, you add more, right? You throw in more, you you increase the the sound or the dynamics or whatever, the volume. And it just strikes me that it's like so often in, in art, but also, like I said, in life, you need the reverse. You need the silence to give meaning to the others, to, to, to the noise. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I'm just fascinated by that. I don't, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I have a ton. I mean, I think, I think we've talked about before my trip to the monastery and that's not the only silent retreat I've done, but, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where when you feel an intense emotion, you should investigate it because suddenly in a space in which it's incredibly, like, totally silent, you feel an extreme discomfort, right? And the question to ask of that is why? Like, why is the absence of activity or the of, or of noise suddenly so disconcerting, right? And it's because it's exposing a tension in your life, usually an internal tension with yourself, Uh, I don't want to sit with my thoughts. I don't like who I am. I don't, um, I don't feel like I have value if I'm not producing something, you know, some narrative is creating attention that suddenly in the deafening silence of, of a environment like that, you are feeling the weight of, right. And, and I think if you're willing to investigate that and embrace kind of what you're saying, both extremes, um, you do on the other side of (laughs) deafening silence, find balance and you find the uh, capacity to be kind of going back to even my monologue to be comfortable in your own skin in both activity and non activity. Right. Um, and I think there's just a, a, a a beauty and a contentment to that. That is something that I strive for. I won't speak for other people, but I think that's, that's like the goal almost (laughs) like if there's a goal in my life, it's that it's to be no matter where I am, what I'm doing to be at peace with myself um and and yeah but and the other thing that came to mind you know as as kind of you were laying it out is the other mystical kind of idea which is you know say yes to everything right we have one life we can be nowhere else than the present moment and it's amazing how much of my life i shut out and i'm not i don't ex- actually experience or feel fully because i just mm-hmm. don't want what's going on in it right yeah, I want yeah. my life to be all joy and, you know, dancing in fields or whatever. I don't know. I actually don't want to do that. It sounds terrible. Um, that always reminds me of like my, when I was in elementary school and the Baptist teachers would talk about heaven. I'm like, that sounds boring. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, like my I always wa- If I can
0: interject real quick, my favorite um, Talking Heads lyric is heaven is a place where nothing ever happens.
1: Yeah. I just always I think about out. that in that context. Yeah, exactly. Checks out. Exactly. But, um, but yeah, so it's like we, we say we reject like half of our life because we're like, we only want the good stuff. And and there's something so wild to that, right? Um, Yeah. You're going through it. You're not going to get these moments back. It's part of your life, your experience. And just if you can just say yes to it, not like in a way that's affirming like suffering is good or glorifying it, but just like. I'm going to experience this because that's all I can do if I'm going to choose to be present for my life. Right. And you say yes to the good. And there's just like so much more of a, of a lived, oh that's redundant, but a lived life when you are able to do that. You know what I mean? Um, so those are the two major thoughts that came to mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. You even say that's redundant because it's amazing how many people don't live life. And I say people, yeah. I've been guilty of that, too. Like, it's very easy to not engage, I guess, would maybe be the word I'd use. But, but yeah, I, I think that's all great. You know, you, something you said, too, that I just wanted to, to jump off real quick. Like, there is this interesting thing with silence because, you know, a lot of people do find it insanely uncomfortable. Um, I have always not necessarily been that way. I, I, I tend to find noise very uncomfortable. And... Um, have even gotten, um, people mad at me on road trips. I, I hate it if people play music the whole time, Mm. I'm like, my ears start to get tired. I feel like I get ear fatigue and I'm like, I need silence in order to, you know, to make music, something good to listen to. But, but I think there's almost another aspect to it too, which is like, and you, and this is more along the lines of what you were talking about. But I, I think if, if you have a lot that you're uncomfortable about with yourself, then silence becomes like confrontational. Right. Yeah. It becomes, it's, it forces you to reckon with things. And I think it's, and you know, as much as I just said, I'm a silent, I I tend to be a quieter person. I still have to reckon with this. I still do find ways of distracting myself. And maybe those things aren't noisy quote unquote, but like, you know, it can be books and movies and, and, um, you know, doing this podcast or whatever. I, I don't know. There's Certainly ways that I can find things of like, okay, I'm going to distract myself. I don't want to think about that thought, so I need to keep something going, something else. And truly sitting there, and I, I keep saying silence, but really we're saying meditation, right? Like yeah. sitting without having something, strictly speaking, to do or think about Yeah, um, is scary. It's confrontational. And I think that is part of the goal of healthy spirituality is to get to a place where that situation can become comforting instead of confrontational yeah where it's it's something that you know you you feel so comfortable with yourself and with uh your world really that you can sit there in the midst of nothing and not feel your anxiety rise and not feel you yourself start to dwell on um, all of these things that you don't have control over because i think that's why you get so uncomfortable with with silence sometimes is because you're reckoning like i said with all of these negative things that you haven't dealt with um and i keep saying this but just to reiterate i say you i mean me i'm including obviously me in that but but yeah i think that's that's for me that's such a cool part of 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 how spirituality works i guess of what it what it can do for us because if you can find peace in those moments of nothingness then it becomes so much you're able to find it anywhere i think Hey guys, thank you again so much for listening. We don't usually talk about this, but if you do know people who might be interested in this podcast, we do ask. Maybe you just throw an episode that uh, you think they would like at them. We really appreciate that word of mouth. Uh, We do have one final question. Mike and I have each prepared for the other. But before we get to that, uh, we do want to let you guys know the next episode is going to be The Princess Bride, the 1987 fantasy kind of satire classic. I think possibly... One of, if not the most charming movie ever made. Mm. Um, I'm certainly excited to talk it's about. Not it. this was, it's not the Departed. It's not the Departed. Is many things. I do. I have never thought of the word charming necessarily <laughs> when I've thought about it. Uh, but tune in for that. I think that'll be very exciting. Uh, yeah. Final question, Mike. Why don't you go?
1: Okay. Yeah. So John, you're a rookie cop. You just made it through a few grueling weeks of uh, police training. And you are brought into Keenan's office, and uh, you meet a upstanding sergeant named Sergeant Dignam. How quickly does he make you cry?
0: How, me, Jonathan
1: Devine. Yeah. Like not, I'm, I'm not the Leo's character. Yeah.
0: Um. I mean, like. This is one of those things we've had these questions before, where I'm like, "What do I imagine, and what is the reality?" <laughs> I like to imagine. I've taken a little bit of abuse sometimes. I think I could. I think I could swing maybe a little bit, a little back uh, and forth, a little back and forth. I I, I can be clever. I can give have as good as you Mike. I give it. Um, in reality, I'm gonna say like maybe one sentence. I'm gonna say like like, like the, the real question is how far does he get into his first insult before i break down before i'm just like i want to leave does he does he even finish it because he he's, might not like there's a world where he gets halfway through the insult. and i'm just like excuse me i just leave i'm just imagining him
1: like stunned and he's like seriously he's like just, oh my just god started i have like i have like an hour of material bro
0: <laughs> you know what this isn't my final question but i want to i want to piggyback off that because I, I should have asked this in straight thoughts how much do you think he prepared his material the character
1: oh, do you think hours. do
0: you think he's, he's up at night like yeah. oh gets Whiteboard. his notebook
1: <laughs> he's just <laughs> workshopping <laughs> mm, he That got like, doesn't land perfectly it's like in all like the wire when they have like the black and white photos of the people <laughs> they're tailing he has like one for everyone in the office and just like rows under each one
0: that's amazing he's
1: Irish I, hit him I, with the again, you don't have a
0: father joke
1: <laughs> Once again,
0: I would watch that movie. Yes. I don't know why they don't make it. Just Mark Wahlberg's got money. Just be like, excuse me, just be like, Mark, don't you just want to go for it once? Wouldn't this be fun?
1: Yeah, he's never gone for it before. You're right.
0: You're right. Uh, Okay. Okay, Mike, my final question. At the beginning of this podcast, I set a stopwatch. For how long it would take until you did a Jack Nicholson impression? Can you guess how long uh, it took before you broke out a Jack Nicholson? Jack Nicholson? Did Jack I Jack Nicholson? Did I make one? You did, Mike. You did a Jack Nicholson impression in this podcast. Are you, you know saying what? I'm going to help you out? Are you saying Can it was you when get I was, within
1: five minutes? or Are you saying it was when I? i did the tom brady bit was that was that
0: it no i i did not count that as a jack nicholson impression i did when i when i wrote the question though i did think it'd be amazing if he did this in the first in the joke intro
1: but Ugh. no
0: you later on in the podcast did finally i was sitting there the whole time i was on the okay. edge of my seat
1: okay 33 Again, minutes if, he, if you can nail it with him 24 seconds one hour and 27
0: Ooh. minutes and 13 seconds it's when we were talking I believe I didn't make the note but I'm pretty sure it's when I uh, said that they um asked if they had switched him out for another person and you started and you went into a little bit about uh, Jack Nicholson or maybe it was Jack Nicholson requesting certain things about the movie oh, it yeah. certainly happened and it was an amazing moment it was, maybe it was, it was the
1: Red Sox hat. I don't know. I think it was the Red Sox. So leave, but I feel like we owe Jack Nicholson an apology. Um, because we kind of, I think the reason it came so late was we kind of treated him like Baltimore. Like he was, he, (laughs) who shall not be named in the party for like the first hour of us talking about the movie. Um, yeah that's rough uh, i actually don't feel Frankly, sorry his performance sucks. i was gonna
0: say i was gonna say i don't feel sorry at all also like <laughs> it i i reference the skiff a lot for some reason but uh uh you know wiping wiping the tears away with money um from from Zombieland, whoever the actor is that, that well, that's how
1: i feel about well, that he's not gonna recommend this to his friends now so thanks john
0: well sorry sorry to jack nicholson uh you know Give us a call. We'll try to get you on the show. You can you can speak your piece. You can get your side in. Oh boy. Okay. Thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Go Sox. Wow. Wow. You really did it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. How do you like them apples? So why are you still doing? <laughs> I ended it. We're done. It's not We're your done. fault. We're, done.
1: We're, done. We're out. <laughs>